The Cultists present Cinema of Cruelty. And today on the Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, have you ever had one of those days where you just feel a bit off? Maybe the world feels too loud or too big, and you feel like it's all just too much, and maybe you're just not good enough, not the best you could be, especially because you can't stop thinking about how you used to watch your mother bang strangers from her closet, and how the only way you can make that little voice in your head that tells you you're not good enough just shut up already is to go scalp a chick in Central Park and take it home with you and pin it to your stolen storefront mannequin because that and only that is how you can find a woman who truly loves and sees you. I mean, okay, sure, that's what most people call a Tuesday. But still, just because everyone has been there a time or two, couldn't you still be special? Extraordinary? Or are you just another asshole that now has to scrub brain matter out of your bedsheets? Well, let's find out. Because today we are slicing into Bill Lustig's 1980 killer classic, Maniac. So sit back, grab a pail of thumbtacks, turn up that Dolby stereo sound, and breathe a little heavier at someone you love as we peel back the chem tone grime to see the glistening guts of this 50% loathed and 50% utterly beloved film that one day simply awoke and set forth with a simple pitch script of like Jaws on Land. Brought to you by the real serial killers of Manhattan, the spine-prickling glory of high-low frequency sound, pushing those f-stops, the manic frenzy of outlaw rebel filmmaking, the freedom in saying fuck you to SAG, and pretty much everyone else, the perplexing slang of 70s sex work, and Tom Savini's once and former nose. And, of course, our safe word today is therapy. Anything to add, Benji? Only one thing to add, London. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of... Space! <laughs> Boy! Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. I see you shiver with anticipation. Oh my god! Disappointed! Jesus. What? Oh, hi, Mark. Oh, Benji. London, my God, look at you. You're over there across a table from me. I know, it's this... really disturbing. Yeah, I mean, not to get too behind the scenesy on you guys, but we do often record these things remotely. But being the holidays, I came down to visit London. So now we're recording in person and I can do all sorts of like stuff to really annoy her. Like, watch this. Hey, London, good to see you. Come here, give me a hug. Ted, stay away from give me. me. Give no. me. Come on, let's have a... Come, come on. How sad is... <laughs> I was going to say your life that you have to come down and spend it with me on the holidays, but I guess that says something about both of us. Oh, gross. Okay. Those are questions we don't <laughs> moving need answered. On, moving on, yes. Uh-huh. So, Benji, yes, the fact that you were sitting across from me is more horrifying than the movie we watched for today. And uh, the movie that we watched today is pretty horrifying, I have to say. Actually, it's great. It's yes. really fantastic. I mean, I mean that in a good way, as opposed to like the horrifying of having to spend time with you in a room. That's the bad kind of horrifying. 
what are you going to do? But today is a fan request movie. I just want to point that out because, you know... Once again, listener request. We don't know his life. We don't know if he's a fan or not. Chances are he's not a fan of yours because you don't have fans. Why do you have... Okay, whatever. But I just want to point that out because we do get to these. We do get to listener request episodes. I'm really happy when we can. Because you and I had not heard about this film, I think, ever prior to one of our listeners saying that we should check it out. Well, I had heard of it. I just had not watched it yet for some reason. There's there's a list of films that I know I need to see, but I only have so much time. That's, <laughs> and my life has only been so long. This is so, true. Um, this is one that I am really glad I had a reason to watch because you were right, man. It's fantastic. Yes. So we are going to talk about this film, Maniac, from 1980. And... First, before we get into some production details and all of the other little annotations, lightning summary for people who have similarly maybe never seen this film before. So we are going to have our titular maniac, our little dude, Joe Spinelli, and or Joe Spinell. I always want to put an I on the end of his name, but I guess there is no I, right? Mm. It's just Joe Spinell. So he is a maniac. He is a killer of women mostly, but other things as well. And he goes on a little rampage throughout 1980s New York to get shit done because he's got a lot of feelings and those feelings cannot be contained. And so he must kill. And it is going to be a lot of mixtures of tones. It is a celebration of sorts of a lot of different horror movies that came before it. It's going to be referenced in a lot of horror movies that came after it. So it's important. And it's also just really fun. Mm-hmm. So what's the best thing about this movie, though? Best thing about this movie for me is that it was made by horror movie fans back when being a horror movie fan was not very easy. Now, you think, of, this is like a thing I like to consider. How could you be a horror movie fan when this thing was in production in the late 70s? We didn't have home video yet. Definitely no streaming services. You weren't going to see many of the films that this thing is referring to on late night television because they just were not going to be played on TV due to content. Back in 1979, to be a horror movie fan meant you were going to very specific niche theaters. You were going to the theaters on 42nd Street in New York City. You were going to drive-ins. Like, if you didn't live in New York City, you were most likely going to drive-in movie theaters where they're playing these, you know, B-side movies and what have you. So being a horror movie fan meant you really had to get out there and find this stuff. And that's the kind of people, the kind of fanatics that were working on this thing. William Lustig himself has admitted that he skipped school a whole lot as a young man to go to 42nd Street and check out some horror movies. So I appreciate that this is a movie made by just hardcore fanatics of a genre, and it really does show. All right, fair enough. I have, I guess, kind of two best things, because the first best thing has been said many times before about this movie, that it is very cool to have a horror serial killer movie from the killer's POV, that he's our little protagonist and we stick with him. And there are not a whole lot of movies that will do that. That became more popular later on. This is going to influence things like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, all the way to things like Dexter, the television series where we do kind of follow that killer around. But this is really an early example of that, and it does it really well, and that's fun. And I also found watching it that it didn't really 
take anything away from the suspense or the surprise because dude is crazy so you never know what he's going to do next <laughs> anyway whether or not you know he was occluded from the screen or if he's just right there on it and so i did like the tone and the feeling and the point of view of this film that I've seen a lot of horror movies. I love horror as a genre, and I can't think of another film that's quite like this one, and that's really cool and special. And that is going to be mixed with my other favorite thing that might actually even come a little bit above that tonal set. And I was not expecting it because I don't say this about many genre low-budget films from 1980, but the camera work and the cinematography on this is super fun. I loved just watching how they shot this movie. This movie is shot fantastically. So what is the worst thing about this film? Worst thing about this film, I have to kind of take the route of the worst thing about the film is not a thing in the film, but a thing related to the film. And that was the backlash this film got from critics at the time. Famously, Gene Siskel of Siskel and Ebert, he was one of the thumb guys, walked out of this film at a certain point, which we'll get to. It's Maniac, a disgusting horror show that forced me out of the theater after only 30 minutes. Maniac is a repulsive story of a berserk killer in New York. This is an extremely brutal film that thoroughly grossed me out. Maniac is making its slimy way into theaters all around the country, so be on the lookout for it and avoid it. So one of the few things I'd heard about Maniac was that One, it was an important film because of its serial killer POV at an early time period. And two, that it was very divisive because it was an incredibly misogynistic film. And so I'm going into this and I'm prepped for some misogyny because, like, I can take misogyny in a film, you know, like, whatever. But I'm watching this and my takeaway... At the beginning, the middle, and the end, as I'm like, I'm still waiting for the misogyny. Like, <laughs> I, I didn't feel it. I didn't see it. So women die on screen for sure, but just killing women on screen doesn't necessarily make it a misogynistic narrative. Having a character or a main character who is focused on some internalized issues with women and having a potentially even misogynistic main character doesn't necessarily make them narrative misogynistic. And Mm -hmm. so I do think that that's kind of my worst thing, too, is, well, I guess it's another hybrid thing. But one of them is that, yeah, this movie has developed a very bad rep that I don't think it deserves because... Mm -hmm. There are definitely some very disdain, dangerous misogynistic narratives out there. This is not one of them. We're on his side in some ways because he's he's sweet and you feel for him. But at no point are you like, yeah, it's great to kill women. Like, at least, I mean, <laughs> some people might watch that and be like, fuck yeah, the women are dead. But that's that's them bringing them to the narrative. This is just, you know, a horror movie in which some people die. And then my other one um, is just that, yeah, not as many people have seen this, that this is a canonical staple of important horror in some of the specific subcircles, but it doesn't necessarily have the pop reputation of something like Friday the 13th or Halloween that you mentioned that movie title and people kind of know that film, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, even that doesn't have the franchise that Friday the 13th would go on to have, you still, that's a recognizable title. So I don't think that this film gets as much attention as it should and deserves, which I guess is why we're about to talk about it for like three hours. (laughs) That's what we do here. Also, there's, you know, there are some connections to real life serial killers in this and London, I don't know if this has ever come up in previous episodes, but London knows a little bit about serial killers. Thanks, man. An unhealthy amount. 
No such thing. Uh, I do. I do like some serial killers. <laughs> I like some serial killer media, like serial killer research. Yes. So that was another kind of amusing thing as we were talking about dividing up the research load on this episode. And Ben's like, yeah, I think I'm going to maybe look into 1980s New York, maybe some of the photography and the chemical processing. I'm like, great, because I want to talk about serial killers and the history of mannequins. And so... <laughs> We, we have some diverging interests, and that's good. I'm glad that I'm not you. <laughs> that was my takeaway. But yes, so shall we get into it? What, where did this film come from? Tell me about All right. this film. This movie was the brainchild of one Joe Spinell, a man who was a character actor for most of his career, and this was his really one leading role. If you, never, if you don't know who Joe Spinell is, you've probably seen him in movies like The Godfather, Part 1 and 2. He was kind of a that guy in the 1970s and 80s who just popped up a whole lot. Awesome character actor from the special features that are in this Blu-ray. He sounded like a pretty interesting character in real life, too, for better or for worse, you could say. But he got together with his friend, William Lustig, said, hey, what if we did a serial killer movie? But it's like Jaws, but on land. And so they got together some money. Some of the money for this thing came from Joe Spinell's uh, salary from the movie Star Crash, which he had done a few years prior to that. Some of it came from Bill Lustig. Some of it came from, uh, I think, some insurers they had spoken to uh, on the commentaries. Bill Lustig says, like, we got loans from banks we really should not have. Like, loans without collateral. They should not have gotten them. Probably wouldn't get them today, but we got lucky, what can you say? And then some movie came from the leading actress's husband, which influenced the making of the film, which we will get into later on as well. But they got together, put this movie together, filmed it on gritty 16 millimeter in glorious almost color, and, <laughs> and captured the grittiness of late 70s, early 80s New York City like few people can. Yeah, so another thing is that we both watched this movie and its special features separately and ended up watching two different commentaries. <laughs> so Benji watched one of the commentaries. I watched the other one. So we'll see how much overlap there were yeah. between those two. So, yeah, interesting times. But one of the things that I learned from my commentary that I thought was hilarious was that Joe Spinell at the time was already part of SAG, the Screen Actors Guild. Mm -hmm. And so it had its own specific union rules. And one of those is how much he could get paid to be on a film or how much he had to be paid to be on a film. And our little film crew here for Maniac knew right away, like, we're not going to be able to pay you. <laughs> base seg rate because and joe is like yeah i get that because i too am financing this movie like this is a little project that the three of us are making together i don't want to be paid for it but seg demands that i have to be paid for stuff that we work on this kind of came up on urban legends last time when i was like yeah one of the ways you can get around this is just not be credited on the film if you're crew they yeah realized he is right there on screen there's no way to hide that and then they found a 1980s loophole. Oh, those are the yeah. best kind of loopholes. Yeah. yeah. And that loophole was is that SAG law didn't apply to movies that SAG recognized as or did not recognize as movies. And one of the things that they would not want to be associated with were X-rated films. 
And so they realized if we can secure an X or NC-17 rating for our film, then we can have Joe in it because we don't have to pay him SAG regulations. And so they sat down and they made a little mock script that they had a meeting with some people from SAG and they were like, here you go, here's a draft of our movie. And the first time through, these representatives were reading it and they're like, well, I mean, how much of this and this are you gonna show? And they realized, oh man, this this initial fake script, it's not gonna quite cut it. It's not extreme enough. So they tell this tale of going back to their living room or their kitchenette or something and spending this weekend where they just wrote the most horrendous, horrific, disgusting script that they could possibly think of and throw together. I so want to see that script. Right? They even mentioned they're like, oh, I wish we like still had a copy of that somewhere because it was so terrible. And then they went back to SAG and they were like, hey, this is actually what we're going to do. They just gave them this look of disgust and they're like, we don't want any part of this. And then they were like, oh man, that's too bad. You sure? And then they like laughed and they're like, score, we won. And then (laughs) later on when this movie came out and most of that stuff was not actually in the movie, they ended up getting a a stern call that was very (laughs) upset with them. And then they pointed out like, hey, did you see the ratings on this film? It's not rated and they won't admit anybody under Mm -hmm. 17. That's kind of the definition of NC-17. So like they didn't actually end up getting this film rated because that was also part of the thing is that if this movie had received anything other than a not rating or an X rating, then they would have been in violation of SAG. That was the loophole they apparently used. So there we go. The X loophole. Yes, the the old X loophole to fuck over SAG. And they were really excited about it on the commentary. So (laughs) there we go. Yeah, they were really open about how many violations they committed while making this movie. I don't recall anything about that that loophole violation, though. The commentary I listened to with uh, Bill Lustig and the producer of the film, they definitely got into, really at times to me, spent too much time uh, talking about the weird uh, grifts they were pulling to get the movie financed or to get things done for cheaper than they would have had they been paying full price for things, I suppose. Yeah, and then last note on this, and then we'll point them out to throughout the movie, but apparently also going along with the on the cheap, getting around regulations vibe, there were two of them were that were even a little bit still more concerned about staying somewhat regulational. And I think Bill was one of them, and then the producer was another. And then you had Joe and this friend of his who ended up doing a lot of the B-camera work that ends up being a big chunk of the movie, actually, that they would apparently go out at night. So from like nine to five, it was like Andy and Bill's time or whatever. And then at night, Joe and his friend, I think his name was Luke, would take the camera and then they would go out and they would shoot in all sorts of places that they weren't supposed to. And Joe's like, nah, just shoot it. Like he would just do something and act and they would get all this like B footage. And so I think that also contributes to a lot of the cool, weird camera work on this is because as they were breaking it down, there's just... just so many different places that this camera work came from and so many different people. And so it does feel very jarring and disconnected in some ways when you try to look at it coherently, but because that stays consistent all the way throughout and because each of those different disconnected shots are so cool and weird, like it all comes together really well. But shall we begin? Um, Well, one last note on the 
on just on the version of the film that we were seeing. We both got the special like edition from Blue Underground Blu-ray 4K restoration of this film. There had been previous versions of the film out on Blu-ray, and I actually saw some side-by-side screenshots. This is definitely the best that the film has looked. There were previous Blu-ray versions where the it was just a very muddy-looking image. Um, and that kind of relates to how the film was shot, which was on 16mm. Yeah, which, tricky format to shoot on back in the day, but that was how you got your budget movies made back then. And unfortunately, 16mm was a difficult format for a lot of early digital restorations of films uh, to kind of be put through because there weren't many good scanning options for that. There are a lot of people who could scan 35mm film, but to scan 16mm film at the same resolution for a digital transfer was a little tricky until more recent years and the scan technology has improved a whole lot. And this was put out by, yeah, Blue Underground a home video company whose CEO happens to be Bill Lustig. So his deck, his directorial debut movie got some sweet TLC for this, the Blu-ray that we were watching. Yeah. One reason why it's so hard to find good tech to scan 16 millimeters because by and large, good films are not shot on 16 millimeter. <laughs> and Bill Lustig seemed to be aware of that. Even the commentary he's like, yeah, so this was shot on 16 mil. And we did everything we could in the promos to try to make it look like it wasn't shot on 16 mil. And we, nobody was allowed to mention <laughs> because, yeah, who would take us seriously if they knew? So fun times all around. All right. Well, having said that, we can probably get into it. And some of the first things that we'll see in this early scene will kind of lead us into a few other production notes. So, our film starts on a beach. Hey, remember how I said this was meant to be Jaws on land? Well, guess, guess where Jaws started? On a beach, huh? Huh? The parallels cannot be ignored. They can't, because on the commentary, they actually brought up, we purposefully started this on a beach because we wanted to reference Jaws because <laughs> it was supposed to be Jaws on land. Yep. So, had to start it out that way. Although, technically, it starts... A little bit somewhere else before we go to the beach, and that is on a viewfinder that is looking oh, those over viewfinders. the beach. And it's super cool because we see the shot of the viewfinder. We hear hey, hey, someone. Hey, London, London, London. I've, I've I've never been anywhere in my life. What's a viewfinder? I believe that about you. <laughs> So we have this big, it's kind of like binoculars yeah. of sorts that are affixed to public places as a public service where you can sometimes put money into some and sometimes they're free. But this one seems to be a money operated one. Yeah. So more of a tourist entrapment <laughs> situation where you feed it like a parking meter and suddenly the monoculars work and we have somebody who's grunting and breathing heavily that's feeding this viewfinder and the camera will push in and suddenly the viewfinder's lens and the camera lens they merge and we oh, see yeah. onto the beach and it's such a cool opening especially for something that is establishing that this entire film is mostly going to be from the perspective of our little main maniac. And so we are invited right away into his voyeuristic gaze. Mm. 
super cool. And as is this beach of these two couples hanging out. And there's just so much, like you said, so much grunting and heavy breathing going on for a second. You think, okay, is the killer all right? Does he need like some asthma spray or whatever? And as I found out, Joe Spinell was asthmatic. So I don't know, maybe a little bit of real life creeping in there. Who knows? And he says, you know what? I'm going to use that to this movie strength, man. (sighs) And there's, yeah, he, this heavy breathing fellow who we have not seen quite yet. He's watching a couple on the beach, and they've chilled out. Girlfriend says, hey, hey, boyfriend, I'm cold, fire's low, go get some wood right goddamn now. Okay, fine. Leaves her alone. Doesn't Being alone on this beach does not go well for this young lady. Yeah, no, she's going to die, but <laughs> she has this blanket. <laughs> okay. We got to... Oh, boy. And go. I'm like, this movie had me at this blanket, to be honest. <laughs> it is this geometric wonder of late 1970s patterns. It's all the primary colors. It reminded me a little bit of the comforter and wallpaper that is in the boys' room in, like, Nightmare on Elm Street 2. <laughs> it's a thing. It's important. And oh, Freddy's Revenge, sure. Yeah, yeah, it's a whole thing, but it's a just bonkers pattern to be on this beach and i love this movie for it there's just a lot of great little like late 70s 80s isms that are coming up and the beach itself is shot in this really cool beautiful way that may or may not be intentional because it didn't quite come up but it's like this beautiful blue moment where the water and the sand and the sky are all periwinkle (laughs) (laughs) And it's very undersaturated, yet impressionistic at the same time. And it's actually just a really beautiful shot. Well, the fact that all these colors are kind of blending together in this low saturation, low contrast kind of look might have something to do with part of the process of filming and developing the negative for this film, which was a type of chemical development process called chemtone. Chemtone was something that was done for movies a lot in the 70s and 80s when you needed to boost the darker areas of your image. It's kind of like pushing. If you ever heard that term before, that's something that's done like, you know, sometimes you hear that the film was pushed a stop. And basically what that means is when it's being developed, it's being fed more light than it would normally get to make the image a little bit brighter. Problem with that is it it can increase the, you know, the the light you're getting in the, you know, the shadows of the image but it will blow out the highlights. Uh, If you remember, actually, to reference a film that was very high-end, Eyes Wide Shut, that movie, in many scenes, was pushed a stop or two. So you have all these, like, you know, well-lit, shadowy areas, but all the lights in that movie are just blinding most of the time. Like, in that part, like, the early party scenes or any any of the Christmas lights. They didn't want to do that here. They didn't want to blow out their highlights. They just wanted more shadow, or, you know, lighter shadow areas. So what you can do, uh, this was a process by a company called TVC Labs that the lab itself is no longer in existence. And the chemical process for doing this was actually a company secret. So it's not really known what the hell this was, but it was a way of adding light to the film image, but only to what was referred to as the toe region of the curve. If you've ever worked with a spectrograph before, the tone curve, if you will, is where all the shadows are. So they could push specifically the lower light parts of the image. Now, the side effect was that this was very a very low contrast kind of look. 
And when you have low contrast, you have low color saturation. So there are a lot of scenes in this movie, this first one especially, where all the colors almost seem to blend together because the shadows are being pushed upwards towards the same mid-range of the lights in the image. It's a very fascinating concept, and it really is an example of what, what people had to do to film to get the image that they wanted when they had so little control over the film stock itself. Nowadays, you want a brighter image, you, you, know, you change the light sensitivity, light sensitivity on your camera. Couldn't do that back then. Film was film. There was only one sensitivity that it had to light most of the time. So this was a chemical process that they could use to make sure they got the image that they wanted. And the side effect was, yeah, scenes like this, low contrast, low saturation. Yeah, and it looks real cool when it's done in places where you get this blue moment. It's very pretty. <laughs> like, you would think that that would be terrible to just mute and everything together into a monotone. But no, here it works. And we have this kid who's just walking, picking up wood on the beach. We also have all of this cool sound coming in because... Like the technical strangeness of being shot on 16mm and having these weird chemtone processes, this was also one of the first films to be shot using Dolby Stereo. And they were like, hey, we're going to use that. We're really excited about this. And so on the commentary, they did talk about how excited they were to be able to use the full frequency spectrum. And they had all of these low energy to high energy moments back to back and they really set that up here on the beach where we'll have this really low rumbling and then some sort of high-pitched white noise and then it'll go back and so they're already trying to unsettle the viewer through a sonic experience and this is going to be an early movie to try to do that with that kind of just bouncing back and forth on sonic full spectrums. And to give a little background on Dolby sound, just to explain what that was, that was an early method. You, you've probably heard the term Dolby surround, Dolby stereo. That's often used a lot in home video nowadays. Uh, back in the day, Dolby was a method for including stereo sound on a film strip. Whenever the thing went through the projector, there could be a special reader on the projector that would give you the better stereo sound. Prior to that, it was really just mono sound one channel you couldn't get any stereo separation or anything like that and like london said you know with dolby you were getting this full spectrum of sound high frequency low frequency and it would be a very clean sound before dolby not so much you were not getting that high frequency low frequency and a big thing that dolby was fixing was all the hiss that you were getting on these soundtracks if you've ever been to a screening of a 35 millimeter film and it's an older film, like from the 1950s, what you'll notice is there's a lot of hissing, a lot of crackling everywhere in the movie because they just couldn't remove that back in the day with the current sound technology. Dolby Stereo was beginning to fix that problem. And yeah, they were super excited. On the soundtrack, or on the commentary I listened to, Bill Lustig pointed out that while they were super hyped to have Dolby sound for this movie, a big problem they ran into when they were wanting to show this thing on 42nd Street in the theaters that inspired them 
They'd often go in, make sure that the sound systems were good for Dolby Stereo, only to find out that a lot of the speakers in those theaters had been eaten out by rats. So, oh, problem. But uh, though Bill Lustig says that the Blu-ray probably is the best sounding that the movie has ever been. But... They're on the beach. Oh, yeah, right. The movie. Beach. The, the guy's picking up some wood. <laughs> Meanwhile, while he's getting wood, the girl is getting murdered by a man thing something that <laughs> sweeps in from out of the frame. There are a lot of hands and arms yeah. involved at weird angles. Like, there's an extra hand in the frame that I'm like, is that his hand or hers? Because it's not coming at an angle that makes sense in any capacity, but I kind of like it. Mm -hmm. I was like, there's something weird here. It's, it's a close-up shot, and there's lots of limbs happening. And he is just going to leave her bloody body there under this blanket, and the boyfriend's going to return and grin lovingly at this bloody mess on the blanket. Apparently he hadn't heard her screaming at all prior or to this. Or notices all the blood. I don't know. Like, he's just like, oh, look, my love asleep on the blanket, like dismembered <laughs> in a pile of blood. I'm like, come on, buddy. Like, let's pay attention. Situational awareness. Uh -huh. You know, it's a thing. Uh, I don't have it, but it's a thing. He doesn't have much time for situational awareness because his situation is he's being strangled with, I believe, grot, grot wire, as it's called, or some sort of very thin piano wire being not only choked with it, but the killer has picked this guy up off his feet. We see shots of his feet dangling, you know, above the sand, like, and, uh, and he dead. Yeah, he is dead. <laughs> yeah, so these guys are dead, and they're dead on the beach, and this is kind of... So the serial killer references that we get throughout this movie some of them are a bit more obvious than others, and some of them are a bit more of an amalgamation of a bunch of different serial killers. Because the thing is, is that serial killers, as much as they like to think that they are special, godlike, divine beings, a lot of their MOs tend to overlap each other. <laughs> They're not that special. They're not that different from one another. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they rise above. But for the most part, when I mention some serial killers throughout this that were active at the time that had similar MOs. There are certainly others. This is not going to be a comprehensive listing of things. But they did mention in the commentary that they did purposely kind of draw a little bit from different known serial killer MOs and that they knew it was kind mm. of a mixture. They are not going to go into specifically who these serial killers were across the board because one thing about the commentary I noticed is that they would start to say some things that would be really interesting and then they would get distracted and they would go off on something else. And I'm like, no, 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 finish your sentence. But then they wouldn't. And so then I I'd have to go and research the end of that sentence. So we know that they took from a bunch of different serial killers, which ones they took from specifically motivationally. I cannot 100% say for sure, but I can tell you some of the ones that do seem to overlap. Okay. And with the exception of one guy that they did manage to bring up, but oh, he, okay. it is not yet his time. So does this beach kill have a reference to a serial killer in a specific serial killer? Yeah, so this killer. beach killer to me mostly seems to, because we also have to remember the time period, right? That this is 1980, so it's going to have to be killers that were had known M.O.'s prior to when they started shooting in mm. 1980. So you're going to have some beach killers after. But one of the more prominently known at the time in circulation would have been actually the Zodiac killer for this particular murder seems to be a little bit more paralleled where the Zodiac was actually across the board with his MO. He did a bunch of different things, but 
but one of the things that he did do were to show up and kind of engage in some binding, tying up rituals on, well, more lakesides and stab his victims. So this mm. seems to be a more Zodiac-inspired kill mm. right here in this Lover's Lane thing. And then he's kind of going to, his MO is going to go away and we're going to get much stronger killers. But I think it's more that they were trying to do a Jaws homage here than a specific serial mm. killer, you know, like beach MO. I think the shark from Jaws is a bit of a serial killer. He had a very distinct MO, like... He bit people. He bit people, yeah. a little bit of a consumption. You know, when the, a corpse showed up that was half-eaten, they were like, oh, I think I know who did this. The shark. Yeah. Well, what's funny about this opening is that the movie almost hints that this is all a dream. Because just as this fellow is being strangled to death and becoming a bloody corpse, suddenly we smash cut to a dark bedroom and... Our boy, Joe Spinell, start like, jolts up like, ah, 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 and he's wide-eyed, and that light is right on those glorious eyes of Joe Spinell. Yeah, the lighting is fantastic, mm. but I find it interesting that you take that as it was all a dream, because that never crossed my mind. I don't take it that way. I've seen a lot of films that seem to do that, that seem to have a very intense thing going on, and then someone wakes up, and that intense thing was a dream now the movie well i think within like 10 minutes we learned this no not a dream very real thing that happened but i've just seen that technique in other films a whole lot so to me when i saw that i'm like hmm, i wonder if they're leaving the possibility that this is a dream and it no not a dream he yeah. he did that he he killed him yeah no what i i really loved this cut because like the dream thing never entered my mind mostly just because of the way that this jarring cut happened where we have a moment where you think the scream in horror we generally associate with the victim right like somebody's getting killed and they scream or somebody finds the body and they scream and so right when we have this moment building particularly the high frequency dolby sound is really really building and you can kind of hear that and it's going to an apex, and so you're expecting somebody to scream, victim or finder, and instead it hard cuts to our killer screaming in bloody anguish. And I also, it helped that I knew that this was an infamous movie for being from the serial killer's point of view, that it's like, oh, I'm seeing, you're bringing me into his interiorized experience, right? Like he feels just as anguished and horrified right now, like by what has just happened, like whether or not he's maybe, I guess, dreaming about it again um, or remembering it, or he just got home and he's releasing that primal scream. I kind of took it more as like, he just got home and this is still kind of haunting him. doesn't even really matter what he was doing right before because we know he like killed and now we have this, effect of this is his emotional response to the scene we just saw and I immediately felt for this little dude I was like oh he feels he's all torn up about this he feels bad oh poor sweet Joe oh little baby maniac what's up buddy so yeah I thought it was like a really cool way of just immediately bringing us into like him right we're keeping the story focused on him 
and his bedroom. Because goddamn it, his bedroom. <laughs> Amazing. It is a hell of a set that has all these creepy mannequins in it, newspaper clippings up around, photos of women that he has stalked. And he goes over the mirror and check and just looks at himself. And he has like some scars in his body that I love that at first it's like really left unexplained. Like what? What the fuck? Why do you have all these scars in your body? This goddamn rigid collodion. Amazing. Okay, so I absolutely love the opening and this room. The lighting is fantastic. We have a lot of warm light and fire. His walls are like kind of a purple color, which is a great choice. And he's just got dolls and like tits and ass for mannequins everywhere. And his shrine, his shrine to his mother that is fantastic. Like, if you were going to pick a photo of your mom to build a shrine to, it would be this goddamn photo that is this black and white, really cool shot where she looks like she does not give a fuck. And she's got this cigarette kind of hanging out of her bottom lip area. And it's it's baller. I was like, I, I too want to build a shrine to this woman. Like, what up? I don't even know her. And like, yeah, let's build this shrine. But... One of the things that's interesting about this shrine is that, yeah, he opens his shirt and we see these little pock burn marks made out of rigid collodion. And I got really excited because I love rigid collodion. <laughs> so I'll get to that in a second. But we will learn throughout the film that this dude has some epic mommy issues and that this is his mother and that his mother used to fuck a bunch of people, usually in front of him when he was a kid, make him hide in the closet, and she was very abusive and used to burn him with cigarettes. And that's where these little scars on his chest have come from. And so it becomes extra interesting and dark that his shrine to his mother is surrounded by fire. He just has candles Ooh. and candelabras all around <laughs> his mother, who he used to be burned by. So interesting psychological choice there. Really probably not the safest decision to fall asleep with all of those lit candelabras. But you know, it's like, it's metaphors and it's his psyche, so we're going to let it happen. And he's going to let it happen because that's bigger than possibly dying in a fire accident because he's blocked his exits with candelabras. But... <laughs> Rigid collodion. So this. Yeah. yeah. Oh, thank God. We're talking about whatever the hell that stuff is. Yeah. yeah. So rigid collodion. This is not the first time we've ever seen rigid collodion on screen. It's just the first time it's been so obviously rigid collodion. And I got excited about it because it's one of my favorite things to have in an effects kit because it's very, very simple. And it has a very, very distinct smell. It's a makeup effect is what you're referring yes, to. Yes, it is a special effects makeup thing. Uh, I pretty much use it on like everything I've ever worked on <laughs> because I love it. Even if there's no cause for somebody to have a scar, it's like, let's just put a little rigid collodion. That's London for you. Taking the quick way. <laughs> yeah, no, this stuff is pretty much like the scarification 101 type of thing. Tom Savini, the makeup artist on this, uses it pretty much in all of his stuff too. And... What it is, is it is a clear liquid that started out as a medical adhesive for emergencies and was used on battlefields and like the world wars a lot. <laughs> so it's because it's just a liquid bandage, more or less, where you put the liquid on and then it dries very, very quickly and it kind of creates a film glue layer over your skin. And as it dries, it contracts. So if you put it on skin that is not cut, what you'll have happen is that it'll be over 
non-cut skin so it has a wider surface area and then it dries and it contracts and it brings the skin with it so it creates these little puckers and these little shrinks i mean like you wash it off and your skin goes back. Okay. Like it's not, it's Still, not a problem. It's so, oh, it's creepy. Uh, it's so great. And so. <laughs> I think we're saying the same thing here. It's creepy. Yeah, it's great. So what you want to do when you're kind of making scars like this is you want to find a makeup that is going to mix with it. So you don't want a powder-based makeup because if you put rigid clodion over powder, then it starts to flake as it dries and contracts. So that's no good. So you really want kind of one of your more oil-based or I've found later on like those alcohol-induced um, makeup kits that they have. So Mayron kind of makes one of those where you spray it with alcohol to activate it a little bit. Um, that will actually work pretty well under rigid collodion. And so it's you got to find what works best for you. But you can paint your base layer of your scar in the different kind of color system you want and then put some rigid collodion over it, right? And it puckers up, mm. but it looks like there's depth underneath it. And mm. so it's, it's a really fun little thing to use. And I love it. But it smells so bad. Like, oh. I still, I hear the word rigid collodion. I can smell it. It's like a... <laughs> It's like nail polish remover mixed with bananas, like overripe bananas. Ew. Yeah. Oh, those are not smells that should combine. No, oh. it's very distinct. That's like a toothpaste and orange juice kind of combination. That's. Ew. Yeah, it's one of the strongest scent things that one has in their makeup kit. Usually, like some of my, yeah, transport cases, like still just smell like rigid collodion because it just like it seeps into you. It gets in there, but. It's a really cool little old medical adhesive that was then just taken by the effects industry and used in so many ways. And yeah, it's still, I would say, the best way to get like really quick but realistic looking scars. And that's what we got going on here. So I was like, oh, Richard Clodian, my old friend. All right. Also, the music is totally working for me in this scene. Well, yeah. Have to say. Definitely there, too. Also, side note, this dude has a lot of keys. I, it's not going to be addressed. They're not going to ever tell us what all of these keys are for. But he has this panel on his wall of just a ton of keys. Some I listened to a few other podcasts that talked about this movie. The fan theory I heard a few times was that Joe has these keys because he's the building superintendent. Um. okay. Yeah, you're like, okay, because like when he comes home late, later on, someone sees him walking by like, Hey, getting some Christmas shopping done there, Mr. Zito? Yeah, yeah, kid. So he's known throughout the building. People know who he is. So that I don't know if that's something that I've never... I don't think there's any source from the filmmakers themselves that that was like a deleted subplot or anything like that. But it's an idea. It's a thing. Yeah, and it makes sense because that means that there's no one coming into his apartment because... And that is one of the things about apartment living is that sometimes maintenance comes in, right? They'll give you their 24-hour notice, but it's like, this is going to happen. you know. Yeah. And you're like, but I've got all of these mannequins and bodies and scalps of women like lying around. This is really inconvenient for me. But instead, he can set his own boundaries and it becomes creepier that he has keys to like everybody else's place. Yeah. Like he could come in to your mm -hmm. place at any time, Very anytime true. he wants to. Um, so I like it. The other last note about this apartment from the director's commentary I listened to, which is this really strange story, was that Bill Lustig claims that the person who built this set didn't understand that it was supposed to be a set and went about things as if they were just building an apartment, which typically when you make a set that is a room, you make it so you can move the walls. You put the walls maybe on casters that are hidden underneath so you can move them around for the sake of a camera angle. 
But apparently the guy building this didn't understand that and just built a room, like a real apartment. Which is strange to me. I don't know how you go about building something and not understand that aspect of what you're doing, because they wouldn't have been building this in an actual apartment building. They would have been in a studio or someplace where sets go. I don't know. Odd, but apparently it made getting good camera angles in this apartment room a real pain in the ass, but they still pulled it off because it, everything here looks great. Yeah, so that actually came up on my commentary okay. as well, that it was made by a Russian artist out of the East Village, and they liked his art, and so they came, They asked him to build this room, and he had never worked on a film set. He didn't seem like he completely knew what working on film sets were, because he was just this fine studio artist <laughs> that then built these walls, and all of the art that is hanging up on the walls was also done by this Russian artist out of the East Village. So... Well. Yeah, he has some cool art on the walls if you kind of freeze frame it. But yeah, I don't know why they failed to fully communicate to him that it was supposed to be a fabricated set. I think they might have just let him do him and were like, hey, will you build this room and like fill it with your art and your production design or whatever? And then they came back and he had like built this like room <laughs> and they're like, OK, so here's the thing in film, like kind of like theater. We need to be able to pick those walls up and move them around. And he's like, you didn't specify that. So <laughs> I was on them, I guess. Go figure. Yeah. But we can't spend, we we can spend all the time we want to talking about this apartment building, but we have to stop because it's time for Joe, to, or Frank, our main character, Frank Zito, to head out. And the sound is a little, is pretty interesting when he heads out of his apartment building. Yeah, because another thing that came up that I thought was a really cool, deliberate choice is that when inside the apartment... There is no sound from the outside world. And they were very careful to do that, except for there's one time when he opens the door and he goes to open the door and we hear this screech from the subway outside. And that was the one time the outside world filters into his apartment a little bit. But outside of that, they did mention that they tried really hard to make his space this isolated world away from the outside world. And that included like that sound barrier, even though he's in a very theoretically thin-walled apartment, not actually thin-walled thanks to Russian East Village artists, but in general, it's supposed to be in this very thin-walled apartment in New York City, and you would usually hear all sorts of sounds filtering in from the outside, but no, in here he has no windows, he has no outside sound, he has no neighbors above him whose footsteps we hear, everything is just very isolated, because his world is very isolated. Metaphors. Well, and he drives off and heads downtown, and to show his journey downtown, we get some helicopter shots of downtown Manhattan. Now, you know, we're at this day and age, we're spoiled for aerial footage of things. You know, you can get uh, you know, your aerial drone cameras for a few hundred dollars if you want to, but back in the day, to get an aerial shot, you need to be in a helicopter with the camera. And this movie doesn't really strike me as the kind of flick that's got the budget to rent a helicopter and put their camera up there, so. Where the hell are they getting this aerial footage of Manhattan? That was a question that I had watching it the first time through, where I was like, where the hell did this helicopter come from? Because I think we mentioned on Urban Legends, too, where I was like, they have a helicopter, but they, they did have a helicopter. Here, I was like, okay, I know that this is crazy low budget. Like, where did they get a helicopter? Did they have a friend that had a helicopter? But no, apparently what they did is they had a friend slash somebody who was also working on this film who had also worked on Dario Argento's film Inferno and had gone up 
during the filming of that film into a helicopter to get these helicopter shots. And the footage was so shaky that Argento's like, I'm not fucking using this. And so they just still had this footage um, that was left over that never made it into that film. And they're like, well, let's try to trim away as much shakiness as we possibly can and just get these like shots of the aerial skyline. So yes, yeah, so this these shots did initially get shot for a completely different yeah. Couldn't digitally stabilize your footage back then. No, it was what it was, straight out of the camera. It is super shaky, though. It, <laughs> it's rough. <laughs> ah, it kind of works. What do you do? He heads over to Times Square. Now, well, something you may not know about Times Square back in the late 70s, early 80s, it was not really the Times Square that we know and love today. Or, I mean, some New Yorkers don't love Times Square at all, even today. But it was not a family-friendly spot. Most New Yorkers, and I believe even Bill Lustig on some retrospectives on the Blu-ray uh, where he visits locations, he drives through Times Square, he's just like, ah, I can't fucking stand Times Square. There's nothing but tourists out here. Get out of here. Go home. Times Square, not a tourist place back in the day. Times Square was where you went to see the, the strip show, to see some pornos at a nasty-looking theater, or where you just walked around and found some prostitutes. And that's what Joe is out here to do. Yeah, underneath a Coke advertising sign that is the strangest advertisement I have seen in a real long time because, and I think it's just an actual ad that is up there because it's a low budget film, no reason to change your Coke ads that are up on billboards. But there's this giant billboard that just says Coke exclamation point, adds life to, and then ellipses, and then Good food, exclamation point. <laughs> so, and I was like, I'm sorry, what? Is Coke adding life to good food? Or is adds life too? And then it just makes a statement, good food. I, I don't know. I was like, why the ellipses? And part of it was in italics and cursive. And part was like, it was a real weird ad. I was like, Coke, you failed on this one. <laughs> like, neither here nor there for this movie, but... What? I don't It just confused me and it stuck out. Weird, weird ad. But it's there. And underneath this sign are two sex workers that, as I've established prior, I'm going to call hookers because all for sex worker rights, love sex workers, but I also love the word hooker. So it's going to happen. And it's 80s New York. So these broads are some glorious hookers that are hanging out on the street. And they're talking about... They're, they're Johns. Well, I appreciate that we get a little bit of, like, their story and, like, one, the, the sex worker, the hooker, whatever you want to call her, who's going to, you know, meet Joe here in a second. She's talking about how, like, I got to make rent, man. I got to turn a trick because I cannot pay rent. So we get her dilemma and they begin to throw in some terminology out there. Yeah. And she's like, I told him that for such and such, you could have French or regular, or French and irregular. Then I could take him around the world, but then there was this one dude who had the ultimate, and man, it was like an ultimate that I thought I knew what ultimate was, but he had a very different definition. And I was like, okay, guys, I've got some questions. Like, a French and irregular? Like, what is, what is the difference between a French and a regular? And how do you have both together? And if you already have take him around the world... What is an ultimate on top of that? Like, I, I have some questions. I was confronted with my lack of deep knowledge and understanding, apparently, of 1970s sex slang. 
And I was disappointed in myself. So I was like, Benji, you gotta go look up 1970 sex slang, because I don't have time for it, but I want to know. I need one more trick to make my rent. Hmm, I know how that is. Oh, here's somebody. Hey, you want to go out? How much? 25's regular. 50's French and regular. For 75, I'll take you around the world. Yeah, don't forget the ultimate. Yeah. How much is that? For a hundred bucks, I'll give you the ultimate, baby. Let's go. You're on. See you later. So, Benji. So, yeah, I'm on a list now because I of all the things I was Googling. <laughs> um, so, I, I don't know for sure if this is what they're talking about, but going off of some websites, corroborate a few other things, I'm pretty sure I have this down. Now, regular, they say, like, he wants a French and a regular. Regular. It's just, it's planetary of sex. P in the V, normal stuff. Okay, so that's baseline. Pretty much. Baseline, yeah. Re- the regular is penetrative sex. Yeah, intercourse. When they say French, now I don't know for sure if this is what they're referring to, but if you look up the term French fuck, what you get is a definition of to masturbate the penis between a woman's breasts. So to speak crassly, what we would just call a tit fuck, basically. Dick between the breasts. That. So if she's saying, I was going to give him a regular F or French and a regular, she's probably saying, I would let him put his dick between my boobs, and then after that, we have sex. But why is tit fucking a higher expense than vaginal fucking? See, that's a good question. That, I mean, that's maybe it's down to the comfort level of the specific sex worker. I don't know for sure. Maybe she's just wanting, like, just just to do the regular, like, okay, in and out, let's do this thing, go. Maybe I can do this without having to take my top off and save myself the trouble of redressing before I get out of there. No, redressing is always better than chafing. Ah, true. It's a really common issue among sex workers. Well, here's the thing, then, you know, maybe they're, yeah, the chafing, the, uh, the, you know, the, the French fuck, if you will, between the boobs there. To do that properly, you know, you need probably some moisturizer, some lotion, lube, what have you, for the action. And if you don't have that, then that's a problem. So that's why you would want to charge extra for that particular service. No, because you still need lubrication for vaginal stuff, too. Because here's the thing, Johns, your mere presence does not get a sex worker wet. Clearly, my knowledge of sex worker terminology is not up to your standards. My apologies. Going, no, I'm just saying, I'm just confused by the hierarchy that's going it's, on. It's a strange hierarchy. Okay, so she says, like, I want to give him a like, he, regular, he wanted a French and a regular, and then she's talking about taking him around the world or something like that, right? Yeah. Okay, around the world, uh, this is like the, the definition I found. Prostitutes jargon for kissing and licking a client's entire body in a long buildup to analingus and fellatio, or, in the short version, halfway around the world, kissing and licking his penis and testicles prior to analingus and fellatio. Synonyms are do the grand tour, go around the world in 80 ways, round the world, trip around the world, see also Australian sex. That last part was really curious to me, but neither here nor there. So she's saying, like, he wants to go around the world, basically lick this guy up and down before you start fellating him, is what around the world is referring to. 
Sure. Yeah, that seems very specific to have on your basic menu of three items. Yeah. And I mean, if you think about it, that if someone requests that, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of work you need to do with your tongue. And you don't know this person. You don't know how well, how clean they are to just have to put your tongue over every part of them. That uh, That's asking a lot. Yeah. So that should be, that's definitely higher on the tier. Yeah, no, I'll allow that to be a hierarchical above <laughs> the tip fucking. So what then is the ultimate? Okay, this one eludes me. I'm not entirely sure. This led me to finding some very strange things. The strangest of them that I'm going to include here is the ultimate insult, which is a sex act. Ultimate insult is to urinate in the mouth of someone fellating you. Could you see why these prostitutes, hookers, slash sex workers may not want that? I do, but I also don't see why that would be the fourth item on the list of common basic acts that they would offer. Now, uh, keep in mind here, that's like one definition I found. Really, if you're going to guess, I would just say most likely if sex workers are being visited by probably men who are sexually repressed, sexually denied, maybe they just have bad sex lives with their wives, they want to try new things. The ultimate to a person who has had a very limited sex life, most likely, is anal. That's probably what they're referring to here. Yeah, see, and I was thinking maybe more of anything fetishistic cost extra, just because that's common among sex work. If you want to do anything that leaves marks or that involves sadomasochistic activity, that that's going to cost some extra because it's going to have a longer recovery time afterwards. But... The thing that's curious is if we're like starting at the base of the regulars, just penetrative sex, where do hand jobs and blow jobs fit in? Because that generally, like the sex workers I know generally like start at hand, mouth. Vaginal kind of comes up the list a little bit because most people just want like a quick hand or blow job in a car, like on their lunch hour. So sure. I, that apparently is not a thing here. They're, maybe they start at a certain price point. They're like, we don't got time. I mean, we... We're not going to waste our time for, like, the short amount of time of a quick hand job in a car. I don't know. These are some classy broads. They are really dressed. I like how dressed they are. True. They're really is, nice yes. and bundled up. I appreciate that. So little Joe Spinell, he shows up in his little baseball cap and his sunglasses at night, and one of them is going to tell him the options. She's going to be like, hey, I do you regular. I could do you French. I could do you French and regular. I could take you around the world, or I could even give you the ultimate. And Joe Spinell's like, I know exactly what all of that means. No questions. Let's go into this hotel room. <laughs> so that happens. And a good a quick note about the actors playing the sex workers here. I forget their names, but Bill Lustig pointed out that these were friends that uh, of Joe Spinell's that he had met like in acting classes and what have you. And a thing that I discovered a lot about, you know, what other people had to say about Joe Spinell was that he was really big on trying to give someone else their chance. Like if he knew someone was really needed a role or what have you, he would really help them out. And this, you know, extended to people who knew from acting classes and also people who went on to very big things, namely among them Sylvester Stallone. Apparently Joe Spinell knew Stallone from way back in the day before either of them were getting many roles. And often let Stallone stay in his couch, you know, helped him out, try to get him, like, recommend him for jobs whenever he could. And Stallone returned the favor and just made sure that, you know, Spinell had roles, like, however minor, in a lot of his films later on down the road when he was famous. So, yeah, 
good on both of them. You know, I like I like stories like that. I like uh, stories of actors really helping each other out in a in a very cutthroat business. I, I like that. That's cool. Yeah. No, he seems like he was very sweet and especially enthusiastic about this film. Loved that he was in this film and was super enthusiastic about the entire process and kind of kept it going when everybody else is like, what are we doing? He's like, nah, it's going to be great, though. We got we got to do it this way. So we go into the hotel and we talk to the hotel clerk, played by young little Bill Lustig, little director's cameo. He's the hotel clerk here. Um, I think in the commentary, he in my commentary, he says something like, you know, Joe was insisting I do this, like have this cameo. Like, no, no, you need to have a cameo here. You know, do this. And he clearly was not comfortable <laughs> being on camera. And you're like, yeah, I mean, he. I think he's perfect for the role of a hotel clerk at a hotel that's, like, visited by sex workers a whole lot. Because this hotel clerk, he's got just really ratty hair, already balding. He's just in a white t-shirt that's, like, clearly too small for his hefty frame. He looks sweaty. You're like, yeah. That's pretty perfect, though. I could, I understand, though, why Bill Lustig would just be like, no, I don't want to play that role. Come on, man. It's weird. And a story that he tells in his commentary was that when Joe, or when the character Frank Zito is filling out a receipt for the room, uh, because the receipt was like below the camera frame, Joe Spinell was like writing really just fucked up things on the receipt and handing it to him to try and get Bill to fu- like fuck up his lines or laugh when he read it or something like that. Yeah, apparently Joe Spinell had quite the dirty imagination because yeah. that kept coming up where they're like. I mean, Joe wanted to do X, Y, and Z here in the scene. And we were like, no, I'm not taking it too far, but he kept wanting to push it. So in this upcoming scene, he goes in with his little sex worker, with his hooker that he just picked up. Because I said I was going to call him hookers. So we're in the room. Sticking on team hooker. Yeah, team hooker all the way. So he gets into this room and he's just hanging out on the bed. And this woman comes in. She is dressed... Nice in 1980 in a black leotard and fishnets, <laughs> looking a little jazzercise. It's kind of amazing. And these little metallic booty short skirt thing. And he asks her, have you ever modeled? And she's like, sure. <laughs> and he's like, well, you model for me. And she's like, sure, baby, of course. And so she starts striking some Vogue poses. She's like, like this, like this. And he's like, yeah. And you can tell he's getting excited by the poses. And so she's reading the room. She's like, all right, this is warming him up. So she starts to take off her clothes. And then he gets mad at that. He's like, leave your fucking clothes on. And she's like, okay, sorry, man. Like, I want you to have a good time, you know? So, which is great because she's going to start kind of grinding up on him, like completely still in this leotard and tights and even saying things like, oh, you're so good. I never knew that, like, this could feel so good with all my clothes on. It's like, this woman's a goddamn pro. Like, look at you. Good for you, girl. But it also reminded me of the bad teacher line that I absolutely love when it's like, your jeans feel so good against my jeans. But it's it's a your jeans feel so good against my jeans moment where they're just, like, humping with their clothes on, and he can't quite get it up. He can't quite get hard. And she's like, oh, it's okay. Sugar, like, we don't have to worry about that. There's more than one way to skin a cat, right? Phrasing. Skinning something, you say? Oh, Desecration no. and torture of animals, you no. say? Like, now I'm hard. And so, like, he rolls right over. He gets. It's kind of a fun little character detail of a violent thing that is going to evoke some of the language that you find titillating. Like, that's good. It's going to work for you. And then he starts seeing some stuff. As he's looking down at this woman's face, her face starts to change a little bit. He sees a different woman's face. He sees the woman from the shrine on his wall, aka mom. And so he starts choking this woman out and 
he gives the best strangulation face. So oh good. God. This is Joe Spinell really playing to his strings because goddamn Joe Spinell had the fucking scariest crazy eyes. And that camera is just right up in his face as he is glaring and bugging his eyes out as he's choking out this woman. Yeah, it's super fun. I had to pause on it for a second just to really delight in how crazy his face was. And I was like, yeah, buddy, like you are bringing it. Awesome. So he, uh, she's going to die. He's going to scalp her. One of the reasons that they decided that his thing was going to be to scalp women was because... Savini just, or had figured out a way to scalp on camera, and so they really wanted to integrate that. <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of great. Like, the effects artist here is really set in part of the tone, which is super fun. And it is a really great little scalp job. Really nice gore without it going too over-the-top gory. Like, it's a nice balance. It's of, a like, fun it's, it's fun. Walking, but... Yeah, yeah. I, I think it cuts away before you really get too much gore. I mean... You get some idea of there's a skull underneath there and maybe some brains, what have you. But it doesn't really dwell on it too much. Yeah, we're going to learn later that one of the happy memories that he has with his mother is when he would brush her hair. And so this is a thing for him is to take the hair and he's going to go home and he's going to pin it on a mannequin head. But... Before we get there, some notes on the scene that I found interesting and fun was that the editing in this particular scene is different than the rest of the movie. The scene goes on a little bit longer than a lot of the scenes, mm-hmm. and it goes uninterrupted in a longer, with sort of like longer shot spans. And this also was quasi on purpose because they apparently. In uh, the commentary I watched, discussed how this scene never was quite edited. They were just having it run because they really wanted to show this at Cannes and they needed to make runtime and they didn't know how much longer their film was going to be. And so they left this scene unedited because they're like, this scene can stand on its own if it needs to without being edited down too much. So we're going to use it to like pad out the runtime for the film festivals. Mm. And so that one just never got revisited and cut down anymore, which it's fine. It works, but it does feel different a little bit. That came up on my commentary as well a little bit, though something that Bill Lustig discussed more on on my commentary that I listened to was just the nature of how hard it was to edit film. Uh, I mean, that really just goes back to the differences between working with digital versus film. You know, digital, we do it on our computers, very easy. You just say, I want the shot to start here. Click, you're good to go. Editing film, you have physical film to deal with not just the physical film but also the soundtrack of the film and if you're being very particular with your sound then you are kind of locked into the length of that sound and you have to make sure that the film is going to be the same length as whatever you know clip of audio that you're going to be playing during that bit so if you're locked into your soundtrack you're more or less locked into the length of the scene and that means that they would sometimes just have to let a shot go a little bit further than they really wanted to because, like, oh, we're locked into the sound. What else can we do? Other side note, St. James Hotel is also going to have cruising shot partially in St. James Hotel. So there's actually some different overlaps with cruising in this movie that's also going to come out the same year, which is kind of fun and weird just because I I care about that movie as well. 
Well, Frank heads home, heads back into his apartment, and he has a bag that I just thought had a human body in it, because it's a bag that is shaped like a human body. Someone walks by and says, Hey there, Mr. Zito, getting some Christmas shopping done? Yeah, kid, you know it. And that's where I realized, holy shit, Maniac is a Christmas movie. Forget about the Die Hard is a Christmas movie debate. No, 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 man. Maniac, best Christmas movie ever. We have to be recording this around Christmas, so I just thought, okay, yeah, Maniac. That's our that's our Chris that's our holiday movie is Maniac, because that's what we would pick as a holiday movie is this slasher movie from 1980. And sure enough, when Joe gets inside, he has a Christmas tree up in the corner of his room. So yeah. So there we go. Theming. Holiday theming. He gets out what is a mannequin. Again, I thought it was a body in this, you know trash bag but no it's a mannequin and he immediately begins attaching the newly acquired scalp to this mannequin's head with a thumbtack with thumbtacks of all things and we get some voiceover like some monologuing action fancy smancy and what are we supposed to do Sit and smile, and yes, miss, no, miss, not now, miss. Whenever you say miss, I know, I know how it is with their ears and their looks and their, 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 their they can drive a man crazy. I, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean it that way. It's just that they, they don't know when to stop. They never know when to stop. That's why they have to be stopped. This was an earlier representation of sorts of some of the serial killer psyches and personas just because... So let's time period conceptualize this here a little bit. Is that our serial killers of note that are going to rise up in the 1970s and become very prominent and prolific in the media really didn't happen that much earlier than this movie. Oh. <laughs> so this movie is shot and released in 1980, right? And right. so we've got people, when they think of, like, serial killers, generally think of, like, Ted Bundy and John Wayne Gacy and Jeffrey Dahmer and, like, Ed Kemper, right? Like, those are the big names of serial killing. So Ted Bundy, he's going to start his killing spree in 1974, and he's going to go until 1978, and technically, he was caught in 1975, but then he gets kind of out for a little while, and it's a whole thing. It so, like, his really... his sc- crime spree is, like, till 78, and then he's, like, known by 78 as, like, the dude who is kind of doing his thing. We've got John Wayne Gacy, who started his crime spree in 1972. He's also going to continue until 1978 and get caught in 1978. And then Ed Kemper, he's a little bit more OG. He starts in 64 and goes to 73. Jeffrey Dahmer actually was not caught at the time of this movie. He's going to start killing people in 1978, and he's not going to get caught until 1991. And so he's not on anybody's radar yet. Mm-hmm. But these these giants of serial killing, of the golden age of serial killing, are really only getting caught like two years before this movie <laughs> comes out, which is kind of incredible. And so that is a certain ethos that is starting to develop in the 70s is that yeah you have people like Ed Gein who had done it earlier and yet those were seen somewhat a little bit as outliers in the academy you have serial killers that have been killing for centuries i mean it's not like 
the serial killer was invented as a killer type in the 20th century. We can find hundreds of years old examples of serial killing. The popularized ideas of serial killing with like Jack the Ripper and stuff like that and like H.H. Holmes and stuff. Ripper's going to be in 1888 and then Holmes is going to be the American equivalent of that in 1898. So kind of around that same decade. And so we've, we've had these around, but for some reason, and there are different theories as to why and a lot of them are very interesting and solid that why the serial killer golden age would kind of rise up in the late 60s and then really take off where the majority of known serial killers were active between like 1970 and 2000 and then we hit a sharp decline in serial killer activity after the year 2000 so Mm -hmm. it's kind of like there's a lot of interesting questions for psychologists and sociologists and anthropologists of like why why this rise and why this fall and i suppose we will go into that in a different day or a different time but the term serial killer itself became a legal concept or criminal classification in 1974 and so That was only six years prior to this movie. So once again, serial killers before 1974, but it as a criminal fascination was really building in the 70s. And we have a couple of different killers that are contributing to that study. And it seems like some of those letters that they wrote, some of their manifestos and some of their confessions within prison did influence our boy Joe's inner monologues here a little bit, because some of them sound quite similar. So there's one serial killer that really seemed to, well, actually a couple of them, I suppose. So maybe I'll set up the mother lovers and then also (laughs) the the car killer. But so his mother loving stuff kind of came from some other guys, but he's going to go kill some people in a car here in a second. And that car kill... Or maybe we should talk about the car kill and then the whole Summer Sam thing. I don't know. I've gotten all distracted now. So I guess, yeah, we'll put a pin in that monologue for a second and we'll talk about this car kill real quick. And then we'll just talk about the son of Sam all around. Um, okay. Well, getting to that car kill, uh, we, we meet a young couple coming out of a nightclub that Frank Zeta is spying on. The man of this couple is played by Tom Savini, which... You mentioned at some point this is pre-nose job for Tom Savini? Actually, Tom Savini mentioned that it was pre-nose job. Okay. Because he was one of the people on the commentary that I watched. Oh, okay. He pops up on screen and he's like, that's me. And that's my old nose. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> when I saw him, in because I've seen Tom Savini in a lot of other stuff, like acting. Obviously, he was the effects guy for this film. But I thought, what the hell? This doesn't. It looks more like Harry Reams than it does Tom Savini. I mean, with the mustache and the hair and... and yeah. So <laughs> that, that caught me off guard when he showed up in this movie. I just thought, you're looking, you're looking off, Tom. What What's off about you? He had a nose job, and this is his pre-nose job nose. And so he mentioned that, yeah, the one way to know that his nose was ever different is to watch this movie. Because he's not in a lot of his own movies face-wise, but there's a reason why he's in this one. And that's because he's gonna start making out with this chick in the car. This is not why they cast Tom, but just to lay the scene here. They're making out in a car. It's a urban legend, lover's lane situation. 
and they're parked and the music is going and then there's this really great little music moment that's like doo 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 and then all of a sudden like little Joe's face like pops up outside the car. It's one of my favorite moments, this little like camera pan, his little face is just like in the window at the perfect musical moment. He is up on the glass. Like when you watch it, you could see his nose like smearing and moving on the glass because he's just pressing up against that. And the woman that Thomas Vinny's making out with is like, whoa, 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 um, there's a fella right there. This is a problem for me. She's like, we're not alone. We got to go. And he's like, what do you mean, baby? Of course we're alone. Like, we're in the middle of New York City in a car. How could there possibly be other people around here? And so she's like, no, I'm pretty sure there's a guy, though. I'm pretty sure I saw his little face peering through the window. Like, we, we got to get out of here. So she goes in to, or he gets out of the car to go around into the front seat to drive them home. And he sits he being Tom, sits in the driver's seat, turns on the ignition, the lights come on, he looks up, and there's little Joe Spinell standing outside at the end of his hood with a shotgun, and you're like, oh shit, and he's like, oh shit, and the girl in the back is like, oh shit, like, shit's about to get real, and it does, because he jumps up on the hood of this car, and with his little shotgun, point blank range, pulls the trigger, and Tom's head explodes, and explodes in slightly slowed down frame rate, and the blood is just going everywhere, the glass is going everywhere, and it's just a straight-on shot, and it is one of the coolest death scenes I've ever seen. It's super cool. It's just beautiful. It's like an abstract painting. I mentioned earlier that the critic Gene Siskel walked out of this movie. It was at this point that he walked out, because to him, this was going too far. This is an extremely brutal film that thoroughly grossed me out. And what sent me out of the theater so early was the scene where we see a head hit by a shotgun blast and it explodes in slow motion. That came after a couple of throat slashings and a vicious strangulation. You know, sometimes that's a very a valid reaction to just walk out on a film like that, even if you're a movie critic, because as a civilized person, there's no point in sitting there and watching yeah, that kind of there stuff. There was no point at which the film was going to redeem itself after that. It was a real gross-out show. To me, this is where I say, I'm on board with everything else this movie has to say. Yeah, I mean, I was already there with the blanket, that geometric <laughs> blanket, but this... The, blank, the blanket didn't sell me, I guess. I did have a problem with the blanket, but I'm like, I'm not here for the blanket, though. No, that blue moment beach in the blanket, that's all I needed. But now I'm like, just totally all in to wherever this movie wants to go from here. Yeah, it's like you've already reached a pinnacle point of perfection. I don't care what else you do. But it, it continues to do great things. But this sure, is the moment. Sure, sure. But this is also the moment of why Tom Savini is just in this role as himself slash disco man or disco boy is his credit, which is kind of hilarious as well. But he already had a head of himself, you see. So he had been practicing his fine effects arts and he had his own head cast. And so he already had this thing put together and this movie had no money. And so they were using everything they could that already was in existence. And so Tom was like, hey, I already have this head. I'm willing to blow this head up. And they're like, cool, so you'll play the guy so that we can use your head and blow it up. And that's really how he got in this movie. A thing that Bill Lustig kept bringing up on the special features, I noticed, was how dangerous it was to do this stunt. Because they have this car. It is on the river. I forget if it's like the East River or, or the Hudson. But you are really, really, really not supposed to fire shotguns in New York City. 
And apparently they had to do this very quickly where they had Tom Savini on the hood of the car. He's pulling the shotgun trigger, blowing up his own head. And as soon as they did this, someone had, like, had to throw the shotgun to somebody else. And a, a PA had to like take the car that now has all this blood in it and drive it out of the city as quickly as possible. They're pulled over by the cops, which the cops are very concerned that they are driving this car very fast, that it also has a lot of blood all over the windows, and they have to say, no, 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 it's cool, it's cool, it's a special effect, here, here's the, the dummy that we just blew up, you can look at it, it's, you know, a, a prop thing for a horror movie, it's cool. But apparently, just doing this stunt was probably the sketchiest thing they did throughout the entire film. I wouldn't even say it was the sketchiest thing, but it was something that was once again circumnavigating the rules. <laughs> Apparently, also, there's still a lot of kickback, and Savito was reminiscing on how the kickback on the shotgun blew him off the hood of the car. Oh, no. <laughs> and so he went, like, flying backwards. Uh. It, was, it was a real safe, you know, situation all around. And then the shot of the woman afterwards that then little Joe goes back for, he's going to point the shotgun into the window and we get it right up close in front of the camera, which is really, really cool. It's this like dead on straight shot of the lens up against the barrel of this gun. They will blow a blank into a protected lens cover in front of the camera, but that is all going to get shot later when they had to go back to the car a couple days to a couple weeks later. And this stuff, this effects blood and the like had been marinating in this car and apparently just smelled awful. Mm. And they were almost going to have to get another car, but then they're like, we don't have that in the budget. And this actress just like manned up and is like, you know, what? it's fine. Like, I'm going to go in there and you're going to get your shots. And then, yeah, they left the car in Harlem, I guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> was never seen again oh, no. so they're like yeah we just oh. kind of ditched it so yeah like once again real Yikes. regulations is all across the board but this couple they are going to die and they're going to die in a serial killer comes and shoots two people in a car situation so a couple of serial killers throughout time have notably shot people in cars but the one that is most known for it, other than Zodiac, because he also is going to shoot some people in cars, but David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, his primary MO was going around and shooting couples who were in cars. Not Lover's Lane couples, but just people sitting in their cars, usually like in parking lots or they were about ready to go somewhere. And he would, yeah, he'd come up and he would shoot them, not always to death. Sometimes some of them lived. And later he would... <laughs> He was the fun one that at first, when he was caught, blamed it on his neighbor's dog and was like, hey, here's the deal. My neighbor's dog, he's possessed by an ancient demon. And he shot him. What? And that ancient demon slash dog's name is Sam. And that uh, that dog demon, he really wanted me to kill people. And he convinced me that I had to kill these people. And then a little bit later, he was like, nah, I made that up. So it's like, it's, it's ambiguous as it was to like how, how crazy this dude is. Yeah. I mean, he's clearly crazy, <laughs> but in what way he's crazy, you know, it's kind of up for question. But he also liked to fuck with people by mailing letters. And he mailed a series of letters about himself. And 
the thing that kind of lends to the theory that maybe he was just bullshitting with like the dog part is that these letters across the board cross time will vary wildly in tone and in writing style. And so he does seem to be able to code switch and try to project different forms of crazy. But his first letter that he introduced himself in as the son of Sam that was found alongside the bodies of two of his car shot victims is a monologue of sorts that reminds me very heavily of the language that Joe Spinell is going to use in this film for our Frank Zito killer. And it's kind of that same freeform consciousness, a lot of internalizing his own monstrosity or thinking he's a monster and blaming it on outside parental forces. Because we have Joe who's going to go back and he's going to talk to himself. And he seems to disassociate a little bit. Like, he has two personas where he talks about, like, oh, this is why you can't go out at night. Like, you should sleep, but you can't sleep because you want to go out. And there's all of these women out there, and they're they're all flirting with you, and they're, they're sexual, and, like, you, you can't control that. So, like, you want to put a stop to it, but you shouldn't. You can't do that. You can't kill anymore. You're such a monster. And, you know, what have you. And this does really remind me of David Berkowitz's first letter. So would you like to read us? Snippets of that letter. I will go for the snippets here. I am deeply hurt by your calling me a woman hater. I am not. But I am a monster. I am the son of Sam. I am a little brat. When Father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats his family. Sometimes he ties me up to the back of the house. Other times he locks me in the garage. Sam loves to drink blood. Go out and kill, commands Father Sam. Behind our house, some rest, mostly young, raped and slaughtered, their blood drained, just bones now. Papa Sam keeps me locked in the attic, too. I can't get out, but I look out the attic window and watch the world go by. I feel like an outsider. I am on a different wavelength than everybody else, programmed to kill. However, to stop me, you must kill me. Attention all police, shoot me first. Shoot to kill or else. Keep out of my way or you will die. Papa Sam is old now. He needs some blood to preserve his youth. He has had too many heart attacks. Too many heart attacks. Oh, my heart. It hurts, Sonny boy. I miss my pretty princess most of all. She's resting in our lady's house, but I'll see her soon. I am the monster. I love to hunt, prowling the streets looking for fair game, tasty meat. The women of Queens are the prettiest of all. I must be the water they drink. I live for the hunt. My life, blood for Papa. Mr. Borelli, sir, I don't want to kill anymore. No, sir, no more. But I must honor thy father. I want to make love to the world. I love people. I don't belong on earth. Return me to yahoos, to the people of Queens. I love you, and I want to wish all of you a happy Easter. May God bless you in this life and in the next. And for now, I say goodbye and good night. Please let me haunt you with these words. I'll be back. I'll be back. To be interrupted as bang, 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 
bang, bang, ah. Yours in murder, Mr. Monster. Yeah, it's a bitch crazy. But, but, yeah, he has this whole ethos that he's working with here, at least in this version of himself, where he isn't quite in control of himself because Sam, Papa Sam's making him do it, and he has to go out, and he has to make love and murder all the women of Queens. And now we have poor little maniac Frank Zito, who it's more of a maternal thing instead of the Sam father demon satan version but he has disassociated and is like it's not my fault like i was locked in a closet and i was abused because my mother used to burn me with cigarettes and make me watch her have sex and so now i can't sleep at night and i have to go out and have to kill right because i I must and I'm, i'm a monster i'm a monster i'm a monster and so we've got this language that's kind of circulating around as this is like the internal psyche of the serial killer in the late 70s Yeah, to contextualize his years, the son of Sam, David Berkowitz, was like 76 to 77. So he also is just getting caught about like three years before this movie comes out. So another contemporary type of example at the time. This was the thing that serial killers seemed to claim is that they kind of had a hard childhood, right? They had some mommy issues, but some people do and they don't end up killing people. So there is that fascination too is what makes a serial killer and what kind of nature versus nurture situation do you have to have go down and there's no clear answer on that especially in 1977 through 1980 there were no clear answers on that we just have this rise of people who are putting this shit out there and they're like what do we do with this right and so they're taking from the environment here in this film and it's creating kind of a portrait of a serial killer that was very contemporary to the time without a lot of answers But it was on the front wave of people that were starting to say, like, hey, maybe the child abuse thing kind of has a little bit of something to go along with it. Because other versions of that aren't really going to show that. Like, if you think of even, like, Halloween or Friday the 13th, like, Mm -hmm. Jason is bullied, but he's not, like, abused as a child. He doesn't have, like, traumatic early childhood experiences. It usually, like, the other horror movie franchises of the day have them either be othered in some way, like Friday the 13th, where he's like a disfigured child or there's something naturally wrong with him. But his mother really cares for him. A little overbearing, for sure. But at the same time, you know, like, doesn't seem necessarily abusive, as far as I recall in the mythos there. Michael Myers, same thing, where he's a weird child. He's born into it, kind of a little more Ted Bundy style, but, like, doesn't have a lot of abuse going on in his life. And... Even Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like, the entire family's fucked up, but they, like, they're tight, you know? Um, so, <laughs> they were a happy yeah, family. Yeah, this is a little bit more of that front runner of, like, child abuse might lead to some sort of monstrosity. Mm-hmm. So neither here nor there, but yeah. a, a thing, to be sure. We, uh, yeah. We get Frankie's back at his apartment. The TV is telling us that this is the most violent streak of murders in New York history, which is really saying something. And he's also complained to someone. I think he's monologuing, kind of speaking to himself again about these these girls that keep doing the fancy things, and that's bad. It's part of the reason he does what he does. These girls, ah, fancy shit they're doing. Yeah, it's a problem. Got to Central Park, and you know, this is what I love about doing multiple movies that take place in New York. Eventually, we come across a scene that we've, like, been at this exact spot before, because we got cut to a playground where some kids are swinging, 
And right behind him is that spot where Arnold Schwarzenegger fought a guy in a bear suit in Hercules in New York. I'm like, ah, yeah, memories, man. Yep. It's a diverse place <laughs> New York. Good old Central Park. Got a lot of action there. But Frank does notice that someone has just taken his photo. A, a woman, a photographer, played by Carolyn Monroe. And on any time that you, you see Carolyn Monroe's name on the back of the DVD box or any time this movie is advertised, it'll say Carolyn Monroe from The Spy Who Loved Me, because she was a, a Bond girl in The Spy Who Loved Me. And me, I say, no, don't give me that Bond movie malarkey, man. That's Stella Star from Star Crash, the single greatest Star Wars knockoff movie of all time, which she worked with Joe Spinell on as well. That's how they knew each other. And she was a last-minute replacement to this movie because the actress who was going to play the photographer apparently was stuck in Italy or something like that. Dario Argento's ex-wife. Okay, yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> was stuck in Italy, and they needed someone. Caroline Monroe happened to be in New York, and they got, you know, went out to dinner with her and said, Hey, we need someone to play this role. Can you be filming next week? Luckily, she could. And also got her husband to donate a lot of money to the production of it. That money he donated caused her role to be changed a little bit. And we'll get into how that role was changed later on. But for right now, Frank has seen someone take his picture. And that could be a problem. He even sees her bag and ha finds her address on there. That could be an issue. We get one of those gorilla shots we talked about earlier where Frank is just in, out in the streets looking in store windows, and this was one of the shots you mentioned earlier where it was like just Joe Spinell and a camera guy running around New York grabbing shots wherever they could. Yeah, finding some mannequins. Mm -hmm. Love those mannequins. And then we get to the next victim of Frank, and it's one of those things where like the second we see this woman, like, okay, yep, you're going to be a victim. Two nurses walk out of a hospital, and they mention the killer. And it's, a, it's like, ooh, it's really tense. There's a killer out there. One nurse's boyfriend arrives with the car. The other turns to the second nurse, the blonde nurse. Brunette nurse says to the blonde nurse, Hey, you sure we can't give you a ride? Blonde nurse says, Oh, no, I'm good. Okay, goddammit. You just said there's a killer out in the loose and someone offered you a ride home. What the fuck? Yeah, she does look at her watch a couple of times like she's expecting somebody else to come pick her up, but they don't. So she starts walking <laughs> and she goes to... The subway. The, the safest place that there is. I'm kidding, of course. The subway was horribly unsafe in the 1970s and 80s in New York. Yeah, especially at this time of night where it seems like there's nobody else there. Although, hilariously, there are certain shots that are like wide shots where suddenly there's a ton of people there. Yeah. And then it'll cut back to being no people there. And you're like... Suspension of disbelief. Yeah, the, those are ghosts. It's what fine. I what I got from my commentary was uh, Bill Lustig explained they had permission from the Metropolitan Transit Authority to shoot the scenes at the turnstile. So where she rushes in and scrambles for a, a subway token because that's how you did it back in the day. Nowadays you're fumbling for your MTA card that doesn't scan correctly. You know, those of us have been to New York, we've been there, and that was all they had permission to film. They didn't have any permission to go down to the platforms. So someone had to distract the MTA rep, which apparently consisted of taking him out to dinner. I, I would love to be there for that night. Like, hey, you want to go to dinner? Oh, yeah, I guess so. Are you, you guys are done filming? Oh, yeah, 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 we're, we're done filming. We're, we're good. 
and now they're running now the camera crew gorilla style is running down to the platform now there are shots when the nurse is running down where no one's around but then there are shots from inside the train that is taking off so she's missed her subway train and as the train is taking off we can clearly see there are a lot of other people on the subway platform but then when we cut back to her it's empty so it's it's bad continuity because that's just what they could get. They could get a shot of her on the platform by herself, but the second they got into the train, there were already people back in the platform too, so getting the empty platform shot just wasn't possible. Yeah, because here's the thing, is shooting on the subway or around the subway in New York City, or really any city with the subway, takes a fuck ton of insurance. This movie had no insurance. So... <laughs> They did not have legal permission to shoot anywhere near the subway. So that that's fun. That seemed actually the most risk-taking. Or they were like, we just went for it. We yeah. just like tried to get, we handle or we hired this dude, Randy Jurgensen, who's gonna show up again later. And he worked to be kind of like our bodyguard to just like muscle people out of the way or distract them. Power of distraction. And because he was actually a detective at the time or an ex-detective cop. Oh, and so yeah. they hired this like ex-cop turned movie consultant. Randy Jurgensen actually consults on a lot of cop-based shows and right. is he's also going to consult on cruising and he's going to be vaguely <laughs> the guy that go. cruising is based after. So there we go. But he muscled people out of the way and distracted them so they could just like be like, hey, let's get let's get a few shots. So yeah, fun times all around. They're just they're just getting what they need to get done, I guess. It's just interesting to me that when you watch this movie and you see that nurse on the plat the subway platform, we are watching illegal things happen. Oh yeah, for sure. Because we can see this, which makes it illegal. Most of this movie actually is just like a lot of n not entirely legal things happening, <laughs> which is. Hilarious and super fun to watch. Uh, I do like that when uh, when Frank the killer is approaching. There's kind of the, this optical push in on the film, which I mean, when you it was like an optical effect where you are just zooming in on the film element to get a push in. Nowadays, you would just you know digitally zoom in on the computer. But yeah, back in the day, optical effects, baby, had to be done. And the fun thing was watching this first before watching the commentary and sitting there and having like each of these scenes come up and me going like, how were they able to do this? Like, how did they get permission to film on the subway? Or like, when did they get a helicopter? Right. Like, and then watching the commentary <laughs> and sequentially checking it off the list of like, oh, okay. So like, you didn't have permission to do this and you didn't have permission to do this. Okay. Like, and you like, didn't have a helicopter. Yeah. And you didn't have a helicopter, but it was more just like, how did they legally manage to like finagle all of this? And the answer was they didn't, but they were aware. And so that kind of makes it sort of fun. So this girl, after getting these shots that are totally unsanctioned <laughs> is going to miss the train run up and into a bathroom because she's locked that's the other kind of horrifying thing is because i do i have run into exits that are kind of like this and it always freaks me out a little bit i've never seen completely all exits blocked off in this way because at some point you got to think like it's a fire hazard mm -hmm. right to completely lock somebody into the subway and have to take the next stop to right. like get out so a lot of times you can maybe get out instead of in but there were times historically where you would have these 
stations that were theoretically shut down and the turnstiles and stuff were kind of locked. And so she can't get out. And that is kind of horrifying because that's tapping into some claustrophobia stuff in a weird open space. But at the same time, you're like trapped at this station. So she veers off course and goes into the bathroom off to the side. And if you are from New York or been to New York a lot and you're like, where are those bathrooms in the subway? They're, uh, you're right. They're not there. Yeah. This is a bathroom that is part of a public rec center pool. So these are some totally non-connected locational bathrooms, but they look like they go together. There is graffiti everywhere, which is fun. And I think both you and I, both of our commentaries included that the graffiti is completely production design. They added the graffiti onto this public pool, I'm assuming, with stuff that could wipe off. One of the graffiti notes is going to say hot honeys big on the wall. And that is a reference to Bill Lustig's earlier film, Hot Honey. I believe that. I think that was part of that softcore career I mentioned earlier. I don't know for sure, but if I were a gambling man, my money's on Hot Honeys being about some Hot Honeys. Yeah, well, I think this is his first non-porn film, right? Yeah. So this was his non-porn film debut, so... Yep. There we go. Getting out there. And, uh, is she dead, by the way? Yeah, she's gonna die. She's gonna hide. It's gonna look all right for a second. She's really acting her little ass off. Yeah, going for it. Yeah, she is bringing it, and he's gonna come down the line of bathrooms... And we're going to think for a second. She's going to think for a second. Because I guess we're never going to think for a second. But she's going to think for a second that she's fine because he doesn't come all the way down. And she laughs hysterically. She's relieved. She comes out. She wipes her face off in the water of the sink. And I'm like, you're in the subway. Let's not put our face so close to that faucet. But she does. And it doesn't matter whatever germ she picked up because she lifts up her head. He is in the mirror. And he's going to stab her with like a samurai sword. Because he has no set killing M.O., which is fine. Not all serial killers do. Because his M.O. is really that he just wants her scalp so that he can put it on a mannequin back home and pretend it is her. Because that is true romance for him. That is the way he does things. That's that's all right. It's interesting. He doesn't really have a a killing M.O., but he does have a here's what I do with the remains M.O. Yeah. Because he is part of the lust murder Set, the hedonistic subset of the serial killing psyche where he gets a little bit of sexual gratification, a little bit of comfort at the same time from this ritualized thing that he does after the kill. The kill is just a means to an end, you know? He just really wants that perfect mannequin something in his bed that he then partialistically thinks of as that woman, which then even more symbolically is his mother. So there's some serial killer uh, real life equivalents to this that are kind of getting shoved together a little bit. Some of the more known ones per se are going to be, of course, Ed Gein is like kind of one of the Mm. pop cultural OGs. He didn't actually kill that many people. He only killed like two. Yeah, it's it's like I've heard it's debated like Two, maybe three, if you can't like yeah. leaving his fa- his brother to die in a field fire or some jazz yeah, like that. Who who counts that? You know. <laughs> so he, he had better, bigger things to do, like grave digging up some corpses and making stuff out of their bones and their flesh, and it was it was a whole thing for him. But he had some super mommy issues. So this is kind of one of like the OG mommy issue serial killer guys. His mother Augusta 
was a very stern, severe woman who was very puritanical and mm. was very um, preaching about how sex was like evil and women were evil. And you want to talk about yeah. misogyny, like that's th- this woman, actually. Yeah, I mean, he was suffering, you know, psychological abuse from her, physical abuse from his father. Dude was getting beat up in every way possible when he was a kid. So, you know, like that's that's fun. But yes, one of the things that is known for him is that he would dig up women and act it out. He's, he's quite the necrophiliac, as it were, and that later it would be said that it was an acted upon desire for a substitute for his mother in the form of a replica or a body that he could keep indefinitely. And so that's kind of, we've got Joe Frank here is not, he's using mannequins instead of dead bodies, but it is a certain kind of partialism thing of like, this is something that could be preserved and kept for a longer period of sustainable time and be a symbolic thing of the lover that will stay, but also like the mother that he did not want to let go of. He would also say to the press later on that all women did remind him of his beloved mother. And so it was very definitively other killers that also are known little mother hater lovers. Exactly. Because Ed Kemper is not going to be a mother lover. He's going to be a mother hater. He hated his mother so much. The flames, flames off the side of my face. (laughs) Call back. Yeah, he was the co-ed killer out in California, killed a bunch of women. And then he also is interesting in that he's a very, very smart killer. And so he has a lot of grandiose reflections on himself and his crimes and other Mm. people's crimes. And he's kind of fun to listen to talk. And he in his self-enlightened way, realized after he'd killed a bunch of women that really all he wanted to do was kill his mother, that they were substitutes for his mother, Mm. who he really had the true problem with. And so he went and he killed his mother, and then he called the cops and he turned himself in. Because that was all he wanted to kill. And so that that's a fascinating thing in his own right. Done so with that. This is like, yeah, this is a serial killer thing. Once again, both Ed Kemper and Ed Gein, the Eds, as it were, the mother love and Eds, are going to be known at the time that Maniac is being written and kind of coming out. And then we also have the mannequin thing that won't necessarily actually be until later um, revealed with Jeffrey Dahmer that... Jeffrey Dahmer is one of the killers that notably had interactions with a mannequin. Um, He stole a mannequin out of a store in Milwaukee that he would engage in sexual relations with for a little while before he went off and really started killing people because he was like, it it was his gateway, Mm -hmm. I guess. Mannequins were his gateway drug into serial murder Mm -hmm. because sometimes they are. And for him, the mannequin was a little bit more of this idealized, perfect passive lover that wasn't you know but he it was it was a stand-in for the perfect passive lover because he was really searching for something more which is why with his kills he tried to make these kind of living mannequin zombie dolls where he would start experimenting with pouring chemicals into their brains like he would drill a hole into the brain while they were still alive and try to put all these chemicals into it because he wasn't trying to kill anyone that's the interesting thing about Jeffrey Dahmer is he didn't actually want to kill anyone he wanted to build the perfect eternal lover that wouldn't leave him and would do everything he'd say and Mm. that you know so he was trying to build his perfect lover and the death was just incidental and i see a lot of frank zito in that too right where he is trying to build through these mannequins a 
quasi like bringing his mother back, but also the perfect lover in this way of extension. And so the death is not necessarily what he's focused on here. It's not the kill that he derives sexual satisfaction from. He's a little bit more of your Ed Gein, Jeffrey Dahmer variety of I need the ritual of trying to create this replacement for what I feel I have lost or might never have. And that's that's an interesting serial killer type. Mm. But it does exist. Mannequins and mothers and all. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Psycho's a great movie. Yeah. Also, the turquoise in this scene is gorgeous. Oh, yeah. Side note um, that... People like to say that Psycho was based on Ed Gein. Turns out, oh. we found out later, was not. Well, Hitchcock might have been, but the novel, I was the guy say, who yeah. wrote the novel. Yeah. What was that guy's name again? I forget who wrote the novel. Yeah. But. So the guy who wrote the novel, I like found an interview with him at some point way back when he talked about that he actually based his killer on Freudian theories, the Oedipal oh. theories, <laughs> and that he later learned about Ed Gein and his crimes and was kind of disturbed by the similarities, but he actually was not aware of Ed Gein before going in and writing the novel. So it just happens to overlap, but was not who he was based on. I just always assumed that, but I never heard that before. I I had to until I read the interview with the the novelist, and he's like, wasn't aware, but I I see the connection. (laughs) And it freaks me the fuck out. So yeah, I mean, sometimes you just write a story about a dude who loves his mother and fucks corpses, and, you know, it just happens that that... (laughs) He's a guy who loved his mother and fucked corpses. Yeah, so kind of a quasi-extension <laughs> from last week's episode. Anyway, um, so where we... Oh, also, the turquoise in the scene is beautiful. The turquoise is just glorious in, in the bathroom and in the subway. There's just oh, a lot of, like, turquoise yes, okay. that's happening. Yeah, we're bringing it back to the movie. We do that sometimes. <laughs> we forget we're talking about a movie and not just about guys who love the mother and fuck corpses. Yeah, you know, sometimes that takes precedent over <laughs> anything else that's happening. <laughs> But yeah, beautiful blue turquoise tones going on here. And then he's going to go home with his little scalp. Mm -hmm. And he's going to practice. Affix that scalp to the mannequin because she's so pretty. I think he's going on about like, oh, you're so pretty. Yeah, suddenly he's in hairdresser mode. So like we're getting him tapping back into the hairdresser role he used to play for his mother. But then also this kind of glimpse that we get that he might be able to have the capacity to perform more than one personality trait because up till now we've only seen him interact with himself and his objects and this is still himself interacting with objects but he's personifying this object in a way that he doesn't actual people and so he has his scarf on he has his sunglasses he's talking in a certain affected lilt and we just see him being a very different person which is kind of important to see because of the next scene where he's going to be an entirely different person (laughs) so in the next scene we cut to some other apartment and we see this woman anna who is the photographer we saw from earlier in central park who took a photo of frank and now she has that photo being developed and no sooner does she finish developing this photo knock on the door hey it's frank she answered the door frank comes in frank is now bizarrely well dressed his hair is slicked back he has on some stylish sunglasses introduces like Hi there, I'm a, I'm a Frank Zeta. You you took a picture of me in the park. I want to come and talk to you. And she's just like, oh yeah, come right on in. And you think to yourself, God damn, woman, you're just letting this guy you've never met come into your apartment? Are you saying she's asking for it? 
I'm not saying she's asking for it. I'm just saying she could have said no a little louder. She's into him for some reason. <laughs> she's like, hey, I took your picture in the park and now you're showing up at my doorstep because you're claiming to be some sort of art curator or something. I he, don't know. He claims he that he's, he's a he says he's a painter, which we never see Frank paint in the movie. But he speaks about it with such knowledge. I mean, I was thinking, oh, oh, this guy's a painter, too. We just haven't seen that yet. We never see him paint. But he speaks about it with such authority and conviction. You think, oh, wow, because it's an interesting conversation where he's saying like, well, you know, a photo just kind of freezes the whole thing. But I think a painting, you know, it, it captures the person a little bit better. You know, it makes them yours, which He's clearly got a thing about possession going on there. And preservation, right? Yeah. This Jeffrey Dahmer Ed Gein idea of like, maybe we can make something that is eternal and won't leave us and mm -hmm. that preserves the height of this mannequin statuesque beauty. So I know he really should have said he was a sculptor. That would have been fun. Would have been cool, yeah. But no matter what the medium, Anna the photographer is very taken by what he has to say and immediately agrees to go to dinner with him. And I'm pretty sure he's like just asking her at dinner, like, do you want to go to dinner right now? That's really the vibe I got from the scene. She's like, yeah, sounds good. Yeah, because she's like, give me five minutes. I got to change. Like, this bitch is ready for anything at any time. Because <laughs> later he'll also call and say, like, how about a movie? And she's like, pick me up in 10. And I'm like, don't you have any plans? <laughs> just ready to go, huh? So she's like that kind of girl, right? Where she is just... DTG, down to go. Let's do this thing and uh, head on off here. And yeah, they go out to dinner. Now, I do think that Anna and Frank, the the actors here actually do have decent chemistry with each other. Carolyn Monroe and Frank's and Joe Spinell had worked together previously, as I mentioned, on Star Crash. She played Stella Starr and Joe played Count Zareth Arn. <laughs> Seriously, people, Star Crash, find it. Delightful movie. Um, but they had they were friends, and like Carolyn Monroe, there are some special features where she's being interviewed about the movie and about Joe Spinell, and she says, when I met him on Star Crash, I just immediately loved the guy. He's just such a, a great big ball of life. Who? How can you not love him? And it, I think that comes across, that Anna has actual affection for Frank in this movie. It still seems crazy that this woman is just ready to go to dinner with a total stranger at the drop of a hat, but neither here nor there. They go out to a restaurant that was apparently owned by a friend of the director's. Now, this whole thing of Anna, like, the fact that we're getting this coverage, like, Frank is talking to Anna. They're having conversations. You might think to yourself, wow, that's, Frank's doing a lot more with this woman than he's done with any other woman in this, because, and if every other woman would just be dead by now. And suddenly Anna is like the one developed female character. Well, there's a reason for that. Because Anna is played by Carol Monroe. Carol Monroe's husband gave a lot of money to this production. And because of that, Carol Monroe's character, Anna, had to be an actual character and not just some random broad who gets knocked off. Yeah, so for money. They did it for money. <laughs> They, yeah, and the director in the commentary I was watching, he hated <laughs> these scenes where he's like, this never felt like it made any sense to me. And in the director's cut of this, I just took out the restaurant scene entirely because I didn't want it in there. And so we do have this idea that the director like clearly hates these two scenes. I did not mind them as much as Bill Lustig did, where it did seem a little bit out of place with his 
character that suddenly he is so functional in a way that we haven't seen him before. But we did get that glimpse of him in his hairdresser vibe where it's like, okay, he does seem to code switch a little bit and he has made it this far. So he's able to perform when he needs to. And this is also something that serial killers have been known to do, not across the board. Not all of them seem to be able to code switch, but some of them. So we have people like Ted Bundy that were quite charming and could switch on and off and then just kind of go into these monstrous, weird rages when they were so inclined to do so. And even Jeffrey Dahmer, like, did have moments where he was with people at bars. He seduced them. He brought them back to his house. So... There is this ability in some ways for people to behave in a socially sanctioned manner and then switch later on. And so that kind of rang as something that I have known other serial killers to do. So it didn't really bug me that he was doing it here. Mm -hmm. And it did kind of make sense that the girl that he would go for, we do bring up or he brings up like, hey, I lost my mom when I was young. She was really hot and, like, you're almost as hot as my mom was. Like, you're a really hot woman. The only person I know who's hotter is my mom. It's like, <laughs> yeah, that, that old line that works so well at dinner, you know? And he he thinks it's working, though. It's working a little bit on her in a weird way because she's like, oh, tell me more because, like, I really want all this screen time. I was contracted in, like, so I'm going to pretend to be engaged in this conversation. And he, yeah, the... It did just, like, make sense to me the way that they set up, like, the I like you because you remind me of my mom, and then also you are this artist that preserves women and their beauty, and I get you, man, because that's what I do, too. That's what my art's about. It's about taking that pinnacle moment of a woman's beauty and just locking it down. And I think Carolyn Monroe, to her credit, she's selling it. I mean, she acts like she's really into Joe, and you believe it. Like, yeah. She she's down to because like while they're at dinner, he also says like, so we're going to meet again. Right. And she's like, yeah, totally. Yeah. And there's this great little kind of character moment where she's like, I got to go. And he's like, so you're saying it's an early night. And she's like, yeah, well, you're you're not mad, are you? Like, he's like, no, and he clearly is a little bit pissed about it. She's like, yeah, because that would be ridiculous. Right. And he's like, yeah, it'd be ridiculous. And you're like, yeah, it would be. But clearly you are because you're you're putting on a facade, but it's cracking a little bit. Right. He, he doesn't have that much control over his emotions. And so it, I think they did it the best that they could have unless they really wanted to build her in more. So the Maniac remake movie the one thing that I think that it did well is to build a believable romance between these two kind yeah. of analogous characters where they did seem to have some very similar interests in mannequins mm-hmm. and in the art of the preservation. So I got that they had some common interests, yeah, but it, the, the seed yeah, the, of that is being laid here. The remake, yeah, really expanded the role of like that photographer character and like, you know, made her want to take photos of the, of the kill of the main guy's mannequins. Cause it was a cool art piece and whatever. Like, so yeah, Props the remake on on that front. I'll I'll give it that, and yeah. only that front. No, <laughs> well, we'll it's see a if very you different movie. later on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> later, like the next scene is Joe going to a photo shoot that Anna's just having in her apartment. Joe comes by with a present for Anna, and a little moment that I love, uh, this weird character moment that uh, Frank that Joe does here is that 
uh, Anna goes to kiss Frank in the cheek, and Frank just like immediately like wipes his cheek, like just, like something. It's really weird. I'm, I I I think there's something going on there. I don't know, but it's a very deliberate thing that Joe Spinell was doing there. I'm like, ah, oh, interesting. He's like into her, but physical contact with her in an affectionate way seems to like really disturb him in some ways. Because he kisses them. They don't kiss him. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that could be that. A weird thing that Bill Lustig brought up on my commentary about this scene was that apparently Joe Spinell was pushing really hard for Anna to be interacting with the models to heavily suggest that she was bisexual. Like, he was big, like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You gotta have her, like, flirting with them more. And I'll admit, like, when watching this, like, there's a little bit of interaction that Anna has with one of the models that seems very friendly, but not overtly romantically affectionate. I don't know. Yeah, I'll but, take any bi-representation that we can get, so you know, by all means. 1980, yeah, what you were going to get was few and far between on that front, so, yeah, what, what are you going to do? He apparently gets uh, the anger going because he starts, like, breathing heavy as he's watching the models. And he steals a necklace from one of them. Yeah, because we know that watching a woman pose gets him hard and off because that was established in the hooker hotel scene where he was like, pose for me. And now all these women are just posing. They're striking a pose. And his fetishistic intent is like, or his fetish is voguing, apparently. He's all into that voguing. And that's what they're doing. It's working. He gets her a teddy bear. He gives her in a box. Oh, it's yeah. Weird. And <laughs> it's like, clearly, it's cute, but also it's like, clearly this is a dude who's not used to interacting with like live women. <laughs> he's like, I got you this bear. We've been to dinner once and I got you this stuffed animal. Uh, women like bears, right? They like stuffed animals, right? She's a grown woman. I should get her a stuffed toy on our second date. What? Again, I'm not Anna's... saying don't ever do that for women. There's plenty of women who probably are into that, but I'm just saying it's a bold choice. Yeah. It's a bold, maybe misinformed choice. <laughs> it would be like you'll set, you meet someone for a second date and you give them a houseplant. Now, they could be someone who's just really into cool houseplants, but they could also really not be. And that would make that gift very strange. So Yeah, the houseplant has kind of even a different vibe. Like you have to keep this thing alive and it's like a symbol of like some I don't there's something very infantilizing about giving a woman like a stuffed bear on your second date. Which like if you're into that kind of like dynamic and age play, like fuck yeah, go for it. But in this context, it does seem like he doesn't quite understand the maturity level that he's supposed to be, like, you know, meeting and acting at. He's like, I stopped by the Toys R Us and got you this bear. And you're like, thanks, buddy. So, it, but it makes sense for his psyche, right? Like, he does tend to just objectify these bodies. And so it would make sense that he's not quite on par with what she may want or think or all, all the things. So he steals this other woman's necklace that's kind of getting him hard through her voguing. And then he's going to sneak into her house later and he's going to kill her. And he's going to kill her in a way that is a little bit more drawn out than Mm. the others. And admittedly by the director, a little bit more sadistic in a way that made Bill Lustig uncomfortable to 
keep in the film because he was like the others there's a little bit of camp to them it's a little bit of you know there's like the blood everywhere this one is we're slowing the pace down he's got this woman tied up with kind of cords to the bed he's really teasing out the moment with this knife on her flesh and Lustig was worried that the camera was starting to invite a titillating type of viewing in a way that the others hadn't. Yeah. That he was like, we're maybe melding a little bit too much what the other, he's like, what the other maniac perverts in the theater want to see. And I was like, well, you have me nailed, buddy. Because, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm there. Because this is, uh, this woman, the character's name is Rita. This is the first time that we have a victim who is. She's getting nude, getting ready for a bath. Uh, she, her breasts are exposed while Frank has her tied up. Uh, she's gagged for a little bit of the scene. Yeah, this is like the one scene that does kind of edge a little bit by even the director's admission into the possibly like critic seeing misogyny because there's something a little bit more titillating rather than like, he's the maniac. It's more like, ooh, camera, like, look at this. But you know what? Maniac perverts, they need some films for them, too. Actually, there's a lot of films for them. That's what's great about cinema. But <laughs> It's out there. Yeah, it's out there. It's most of horror, really. But that's why this one really didn't come off. As, this film overall did not come off as misogynistic. So I was like, people have not been watching enough horror movies if you think this is the misogynistic <laughs> horror film. Because, like, clearly this guy is supposed to be a maniac. Like, we're not supposed to think necessarily, like, life goals. Because he's really sad about his life and the women that he's killing. And he's sad about not having his mom. He's sad about having to, like, kind of dry hump this corpse while pretending it's his mom. Like, there's a lot of shame going on here. You know, he's not exactly reveling in it. But he is going to do all of those things. And then he is going to bounce to invite Anna to a movie. She's going to be ready in 10 minutes. Well, but... I love that he says, I was thinking I'd like to take you out to a show. Can you be ready in, t in 15 minutes? And she's like in the middle of developing more photos, but she just says, I can be ready in 10. Okay, see, this is one of those I'll believe the impossible but not the improbable moments. Like, okay, look, I'll believe that he's getting away with killing and scalping women and the police are just completely dumb fuck and don't know what to do. But no way can this one be ready in 10 minutes. Give me a break. Some women can. I'm not one of them, but some men, some... I don't mean that in the way of like, oh, women, they can't get ready. I mean, she's developing photos. She's got shit to do. Yeah, but she apparently really likes it. I guess I don't so. Know why. She's like, I'm ready to drop everything. If Frank calls me and says, hey, I want you to leave your house and come with me to a thing. Uh, she says, yep, 10 minutes. Give me. I'm going to do it. She will leave that photo in the developer for him because <laughs> she's got other photo paper. It's fine. I love yeah. And what a weird thing when he calls here, he's calling her from a payphone, and he gets in his car. And I swear his car is just on the sidewalk next to this because he dr he pulls his car away and it, it like bounces on the curb getting onto the road. He parked in the sidewalk to make that phone call happens gotta get out of the street you know yeah. oh fun note about the earlier scene where he's murdering rita is oh that the it's a very fun scene director yeah. did specifically talk in the commentary about the lighting choices of this scene being that he wanted to recreate almost down to the 
the sh- exact shadows, the lighting in the exorcist scene where Regan is being excised. Oh, so there's okay. a slightly different vibe to the lighting in this scene is because they really wanted to tap into the exorcist in this room. She's tied to the bed and we have the under lighting from mostly like the floor up and a lot of gray tones with yellow light. It's a curious combination. And if it looks vaguely familiar, it's because they really tried to put some work into that. They also at some points throughout this are going to use that old like twisting the leather wallet trick which is mostly known on the exorcist for like the sound of reagan's head turning around to like you know do different kind of like sound effects stuff there's a lot you can do the leather wallet and sound effects but yeah this guy he's picking her up and he's like hey i know i said we were gonna go to a movie but actually can we stop by my dead mother's grave because i gotta pay my respects and she's like yeah that's totally chill that makes sense as a request on his uh commentary for this this little conversation it's all one shot looking through the window the driver's side window at frank and anna as frank is driving and according to bill lustig this the car for this was his own car his 250 dollars buick and to the rigging for the camera on it completely fucked the car up and apparently it was useless after the shoot yeah, he was bitching about that on mine, too. Okay, I think because yeah. from what Still I gathered, better. he was using a steering wheel rig, which, yeah, that will definitely fuck your shit up. That's why you want to you wanna rig it to the passenger or driver's side window, but it's fine. So they didn't do that. Yeah, his, his car was sacrificed for the art, apparently. And they go to this graveyard because, as Lustig mentioned, like he's like, this is our plan nine from outer space scene, I guess. Because <laughs> it does go day to night it goes, really quick. It goes day to night real fast. And also, at some point, like she's going to get spooked because they're by the graveyard and they really wanted a carry moment. Stephen King's carry, where we have the hand shooting up from the grave or what have you. And he's like, yeah, I really wanted that carry moment in here. And she is going to go running because Joe's acting real weird or Frank's acting real weird. She's like, this is this shit's not cool. And she's going to go flying through these gravestones. Joe is chasing after her and the lighting is just nuts. (laughs) We've got like different underlights from the different gravestones. We've got tracking shots of sorts that seem to be just like getting pushed along. Like there is something that goes into a slightly like plan nine Ed Wood territory in this scene, which is fun. Like I'm not, I'm not mad about it. But uh, yes, so she, she runs because Frank start, like he lays the wreath down on this mother's grave and starts like doing a, a Hail Mary Hail Mary, full of grace, uh, Catholic uh, things, and then begins sobbing and begins to choke Anna, and Anna's having none of that, and a- Anna's got final girl energy now, because she's the final girl of the horror film, so she can outrun the killer, and after Frank chases her, she slices his arm with a shovel that was in the graveyard, because, you know, graveyard, shovels, they're just there, and he stumbles back to the mother's grave, and hey, speaking of Carrie, um... Mom reaches out of the grave and chokes him. Yeah, because he's starting to lose it. Had he not lost it prior to this? No, he was fine. Oh. He was fine. He was fine. It's fine. He just, you know, he's having a bit. We're all like one really bad day away from going crazy. His it's feelings true. were hurt. You, you know, know? <laughs> his mother was mean to him. All of these girls are like teasing him all the time, wearing their <laughs> coats. Your fancy clothes. Your fancy coats. Why'd you go out there in your fancy clothes? Your parkas and your boots, you know? (laughs) 
And, uh, of course, you know, it's all in Frank's head, so he stumbles back home. Uh, apparently he hasn't bled out yet from the slice to his arm, but it, it, it's all good. And gets in, and those mannequins that he's put scalps on, they all come to life and start attacking him. They look like zombies from, like, Dawn of the Dead. The, the kind of the gray skin, sunken eyes, that thing. And they begin attacking Frank and chopping off parts of his body. And it culminates when they rip off Frank's fucking head. Like, pull the thing off. I've seen some people say this was Tom Savini's practice run for Day of the Dead. Day of the Dead, you know, the third George Romero zombie film. Uh, you know, compared to Dawn of the, like, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, I, in my opinion, meh, you know, whatever. But there's just one moment in Dawn, Day of the Dead when a guy is ripped in half. And it's gloriously gory and epic and just, oh man. And this is like, it's kind of close to that. Because Frank's head is ripped off, like you have like pieces of throat muscles and bones pulling apart. It's a proper gory scene. I mean, you slow it down, you look at it in high definition, you can definitely tell, like, oh, well, yeah, that's clearly, like, a fake head of Joe Spinell. No, it's a great job. Yeah, it's a totally great job. This this fake head of Joe Spinell would end up having a very strange fate. Sadly, in 1989, uh, Joe Spinell passed away. He had apparently cut himself in his apartment. He was hemophiliac and bled out. And when the police arrived at his apartment to find him, the first thing they saw was that Joe Spinell had kept this head, and it was just on a shelf in his apartment. That was the first thing the police saw when they came into his apartment. And according to Bill Lustig, he just says, You know what? Joe was looking down from wherever, laughing his ass off at that. He probably loved it. Yeah, he loved to go to conventions and sign his name with, as Frank Zito and stuff. Like, he was all about being this character, which is great. <laughs> and another little effect in here is, so all of these mannequins will attack. Mm -hmm. And then seemingly out of nowhere, but also still kind of fitting, this headless body rises up from the side of the bed in what looks like almost like a cheerleader uniform or something. And it's spurting blood from the decapitated neck. And this body is actually Betsy Palmer's headless body from Friday the 13th. Oh! <laughs> because Tom Savini just had it. So okay, he was yeah. like, let's throw it in there. Because once again, whatever <laughs> we got, we're going to use. Because we don't have money for our own stuff. So we're just going to throw it in there. And so that's kind of fun that this movie actually took him out. We found out the same month as Friday the 13th. May wow. of 1980. So... They were working on him simultaneously, uh, and he's like, oh, let's just pull over here. Like, oh, it's going to be in this other random movie, but, yeah. like, who's really going to watch that one, you know? Like, I, I made the body. There's no no contract that says I can't use this, so yeah, here we go. Yeah, it's around. So, as you may have guessed, uh, th these model, these mannequins coming to life, that was kind of just all in Frank's head. That, that didn't really happen. The police arrive, and like I mentioned at the start, this is the first time we've seen the police. Like, police of any sort. They're just, like, on their way to the ha to Frank's place because, I don't know, just apparently whatever. They, they got a tip that something happened. Maybe Anna, like, contacted the police and said, Hey, there's this guy who tried to attack me, and he was muttering about killing my friend Rita, too. You may want to look into that. So, I guess they went over. Meanwhile, the cop who shows up is Randy Jurgensen. <laughs> hey, 
right? Who? He's a, an actual cop detective that oh, then right, right. would the, go on to the, consult right. on a lot of cop and detective movies. You mentioned and, earlier, yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> including cruising. Cruising, yay. Uh, yeah, they come in and do a thorough investigation where they look at Joe, who apparently the re- what really happened was not the mannequins coming to life, but rather Joe stabbing himself through the gut with that sword from earlier that he killed the nurse with. And they really decide, well, all right, we've seen what we need to here. Neither one of them have a line. Yeah, they just leave. Apparently, they cast Randy Jernson and his actual real-life partner at the time and his car to just, like, drive to the scene. And they're like, we did that because he had the car and the badge if he got pulled over. Because once again, we're circumnavigating the rules here. They're just like, hey, buddy, you have a badge. So if we speed and we have you speed for this shot, then that's cool, right? Because you can just flash your badge mm-hmm. and be like, I'm a cop. It's okay that I'm speeding down the street yeah. unsanctioned. And they've got the sirens going. So it's like, they'll get away with it. Yeah. So it's all good. they were like, we, we brought in Randy to do that. We're like, hey, you're a cop. Mm-hmm. You want to do this for us? So that's how yeah. that worked. And they leave and the camera lingers on... Frank's dead body, and then we get closer and closer to Frank's face, and Frank's eyes open. Oh shit, he's not dead! Zoom in on his face! Cut. Credits. The end. Sequel bait. Yeah, sequel bait, which Joe Spinell actually really did want to do. He wanted, he, that was his choice, as Bill Lustig says, to leave it open for a sequel, which he... Joe Spinell tried to do, apparently. I was say, there's like a short, right? Yeah. It's less of a short film. I found this on YouTube. It's less a short film and more like a, a proof of concept video. Um, apparently, the idea was to do this sequel called Mr. Robbie colon Maniac 2. And it's Joe Spinell. It's not terribly clear if he's still playing Frank from the first movie. But it's, uh, he's someone, I, I fucking, I don't even know what the goddamn plot of the thing was, because I couldn't keep track of it, and it's, it's just, it was not a very, I, I'm sorry to say, it just wasn't a very compelling video, uh, but I think he was meant to be, like, a radio call-in host who heard mean things happening when to kill people. Again, I feel bad. I, I don't remember what the hell the point of this thing, what, what the plot of this thing was, but they're really, it just was so very unclear. He, he kills people, basically. Things happen, and he finds reasons to kill more people, and he goes and kills more people. So that was, yeah, the sequel didn't happen. However, in 2012 or 2013, somewhere in there, there was a remake of this that had involvement from Bill Lustig. He did not direct, but he was, I believe, a producer on the film, called Maniac, of the same name, starring, of all people, Elijah I'm sure Wood. That's of all people, but yeah. I mean, compare Joe Spinell to Elijah Wood. They're just, they're they're two very different kinds of actors, or two different very different looks. That's true. The Maniac remake is a very different type of movie. As very well. true. So we have this boy child of Elijah Wood who is in a neon lit Los Angeles instead of gritty 1980s New York. Right. So it's a very different vibe in that. It is modern, so he is now a mannequin restoration artist, which I do like that. There are patches of this Maniac remake that I do like. I like that he is a restoration artist of mannequins and just spends so much of his time 
constructing these women. That is very cool. The thing that it's most noted for is that it is filmed almost entirely, but with a few weird exceptions, in the first-person POV. So we yeah. only get glimpses of him in mirrors or in reflections of stuff, which uh -huh. is a cool exercise, but... I have a hard time watching first-person POV stuff in the way that I also have a hard time reading literature in the yeah. first person. It's just not my thing, but you're, I like you're, it. you're weird that way. It's true. Yeah, I mean, though, in all, I wasn't really... I still really don't know what to make of that or how I feel about that because it's not a concept they really stick to. There are random moments where we, we were watching him from a third-person point of view or we see him... Not in first person point of view, but it's obviously a like a dream moment or a memory of his where he's picturing himself and someone else. But then there are times when it, it he's like when he's murdering someone and we remove ourselves from that first person point of view and it's just watching him kill somebody. And yeah, a little, little strange, a little odd. Yeah, I think there was a push towards first person camera perspectives with a lot of social media platforms, especially once like GoPros and stuff became more popular. So there was a trending push towards the different camera angles that we could explore stuff from. I find it a little dizzying. I find that the camera can't quite capture the human eye in the right mm -hmm angles and so i find that jarring because i'm supposed to think it's somebody's kind of eyesight but yeah. when you extend that to a larger scene especially with the cameras that they were using on maniac i was like i'm not believing that this is somebody's eyes so it's instead just a little bit claustrophobic and like yeah. oddly positioned but i do love it as a film exercise like love that they're going and doing stuff it's an alexandra Age film so it's super on the gore front i mean he's gonna bring us high tension in piranha 3d which piranha 3d <laughs> is super fun movie like i nothing against piranha 3d that shit is great but it's also very gory and so he's known as a kind of a mixer of practical and digital effects he does kind of push past the practical into you can feel the digital components but he does mm -hmm. a pretty good job with his digital stuff he has a style and so there's the gore is there if that's what you're into. It really is, but yeah. It didn't really, I don't know, it just didn't work for me. And it might mm. just be because this 1980s film was so delightful. I don't know how I would have felt about Maniac 2012 if I had gone into it just thinking it was completely independent film from, mm -hmm. you know, I think I fell into the curse of like, it's a remake of this film that is glorious. Yeah. And so it was haunted by its shadow of something that was just tonally delightful and really brought me in. I cared about the characters in the 1981. I, I cared about dear little Joe and Frank. And I was like, oh, buddy, like, I, I don't really care if you die, but I care about watching you on screen. You right. Know? <laughs> and I just like could not care about watching anybody on screen in the Maniac one or in the 2012 one because you had our main character we never saw. Yeah. So I sometimes we saw him, but most of the time I didn't really feel like we had anybody to focus on. Yeah, so that the, was curious. The movie is like really trying to shoehorn ways for us to see Elijah Wood with like the first kill is was that like meant to be a sex worker he was with in the first scene or just some woman he had picked up at a bar? I wasn't really... Yeah, it doesn't even matter. Because it's clear. just another woman that he's going to kill. But they're the only ones we see on screen. So we yeah. just get a parade of women that are dying from our first camera perspective. And there's yeah. just, like, nothing to root the narrative. But, like, in that 
the first one he meets, they go to her place and she has a mirror on her ceiling. So we have these shots of Elijah Wood like laying down, looking up at himself in the mirror, and then occasionally looking back down on this woman beginning to... Yeah, and that was all fun. Like, that was the most fun thing about the film, I think, was the camera work and watching how they were going to do that. So, once again, like the experiment, but if you're a diehard fan of Maniac, you may or may not like the remake just because you might be trying too hard to see the glory of the original, like, in this remake. But as a standalone, like, maybe it works. It worked for some people. So I'm not going to say that it was, like, this terrible movie. I just, I didn't get what I wanted out of the remake of Maniac. Yeah. I, to your point about the camera work, really, any time that I that there's a movie where it's meant to be a first-person point of view, but it's clearly zoomed in on something, I think to myself, no, our eyes don't have zoom lenses. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, there there is a set focal length you can work with if you're trying to recreate a first-person point of view, and a 100-millimeter lens is not that. Yeah. So, yeah, I found the the remake a little hollow, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it was bad. Maybe mm. I just need more time with it. You know, <laughs> I need to revisit it because I don't like saying that films are bad or good. Certain ones just don't really live up to certain expectations that I have for them. But that doesn't mean it won't live up to other people's expectations. Look, uh, I said when we were watching the movie, I'll say it now. Elijah Wood should have worn wigs in that movie. <laughs> But do you wear wigs, Mr. Woods? N- no. Will you wear wigs, Mr. Woods? Maybe. Whole thing. Now, uh, so top five. Top five for this, for the original Maniac from 1980. Uh, my honorable mention will just be to say once again, sex workers' rights. Need them. This movie is a case for them. So your honorable mention was just for the rights of sex workers yeah. everywhere so they don't keep getting murdered by serial killers? I would prefer it if they did not. Yeah. All right, that's, that's fair. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that a problem, London? You got a problem with sex workers' rights? Huh? Is that a problem for you? Is that too much? Can you not handle that? No, there's other people to serial kill. It'll be fine. Oh, that, yeah, that's very true. So, my honorable mention goes out to the cavalier fuck-it-all attitude of this film. <laughs> Super fun. Like I said, watching this film all the way through, I'm like, how in the world did they do that legally? They didn't. And the answer is they didn't. And (laughs) it's great. So that's fun. It might come through even more if you're a person who really likes filmmaking and knows how films are made, or especially during this time period, and have that experience where you're watching and you're like, what? And you're, that, that's accurate. Yeah, Hold on to that feeling, because it is fun. It is it is some rebel filmmaking, and that is great. <sighs> My number five is a duo uh, going out to Carolyn Monroe and Carolyn Monroe's husband, whose name fails me, but they're both very important. Carolyn Monroe, just because I like her performance in this, she's always fun to watch. And because her husband gave money to the production, they had to make her an actual character in the movie and not just some woman who gets killed off. I, I don't know the specifics, but I have a really strong feeling that the original arc of the photographer was just she takes a picture of Joe. Joe goes to her apartment and kills her. Probably was about the extent of that character. But because this woman's husband is giving... I mean, I've heard between $75,000 and $100,000 to the movie. You have to make her an actual character. So we get our like one like fleshed out female character of the entire movie because uh, the actor's husband donated. So there you go. My number five 
goes out to the production design, particularly the mannequins. The mannequins <laughs> are so great. So very, very great. I go back and forth as to whether or not I appreciate mannequins. and fi- Well, I've always appreciated mannequins because they're always sure. been a little creepy, you know, mm-hmm. but I go back and forth between whether or not I reject the uncanniness of them or if I fucking love the uncanniness of mannequins. And this movie, it, it reawoke in my appreciation of embracing the mannequin. I was like, you know what? You're right. Those mannequins, they got a little something going on. I kind of like it. And they pulled off, like, every hairstyle, which was also kind of fun. Like, Mm -hmm. a lot of the times, production would come in, they had these great, well, we're going to kind of dovetail a little bit, I guess, into Tom (laughs) Savini. But we, yeah, they would bring in the little scalps, and he'd just thumbtack them onto these mannequins, (laughs) and it would just look great. No matter how matted or askew the hair was, it just looked like it belonged on them. And the blood that would then run down from these things and the just different dress design. It was was fun. It was definitely fun. These mannequins were working, and I just like them as these symbolic metaphors for partialism. My number four, uh, that was what I'm on right now. Yeah, number four uh, goes out to our director, our our director making his debut not-porn movie, William Lustig, Bill Lustig. He was a fun guy to listen to on the commentary. I... There are some things about his the director commentary I listened to that I just thought, okay, dude, get on with it now, like move on. But even despite that, he was a very fun guy to listen to. Uh, he was very fun to watch on the special features, and he went on to make a lot of other crazy films. Like after he made Maniac, he made Maniac Cop, which, as far as we can tell, is not related to Maniac. Not so much. No, uh, Maniac Cop Two also not related. Maniac Cop 3, which is related to Maniac. I did not see that. No, it's not. It is, it, is, it is not. And continues to produce and owns the, like I said at the start, the home video company, Blue Underground, that put out this Blu-ray. Which, I mean, they don't just put out his movies, obviously. But I, I appreciate that. I appreciate his uh, dedication to the quality of the Blu-ray that they did for this and the 4K restoration. So, yeah, just all the things Bill Lustig. Very fun. I'm sure I'll say this, and then, like, later on, I'll research more about him and just, like, realize, oh, he's a total asshole, too. Fuck, man. God damn it. Assholes can make good art. That's true. You're number four. My number four is good old Tom Savini. The effects in this are spectacular. The scalps, great. The scalping, great. That blown up head in slow motion, abstract spatter, like, Jackson Pollock <laughs> glass. Uh, it, it was just beautiful. Tom beautiful. Savini, the Jackson Pollock of gore. Yeah. <laughs> My number three is Tom Savini for all of the, the same reasons that you just had there. Uh, I love that he was utilizing every trick that he had, everything he had done prior from the, the headless body of Betsy Palmer. Um, <laughs> all the different things he was using. Uh, the fact that he was... They, they had to do this special effect of the head blowing up just because he had a, a fake head of himself. I mean, that's, that is hilarious to me, and uh, I appreciate him for that. And he just always comes off like a, a pretty fun guy in interviews. Yeah, he was fun in the commentary, too. Oh, right and he's, he's very influential to the effects world. So. Very good. Uh, you're number three. My number three goes out to Joe Spinell. So, so good in this. Mm -hmm. And I love that he stuck by this film and was so proud to have been in this film and really wanted to be one of the next 
great horror figures. And it's interesting to me that he didn't quite develop in that way, in the way that you go to horror conventions and you see a certain love for some of the masked killers like Jason or Mike mm-hmm. Myers or Leatherface. And Frank doesn't quite get that same level of love. Uh, no. And he, Strange. this movie also doesn't have the franchise to base off of it. But yeah, he he brought something really special to this. And that strangulation face. My God, that strangulation <laughs> face. Uh, my number two. That's what we're on now, right? Two? Uh, probably. Yeah, yeah, okay. My, probably, my number two goes out to the cinematography of this film, that uh, that glorious, gritty 16-millimeter cinematography of New York City. I mean, I just, I just love, like, gritty early 80s, late 70s New York movies that, I don't know why, that just, there's a special place in my heart for films like that, uh... Like uh, just to give like another example off the top of my head, uh, like Smithereens. I think I've shown you that film, film from the night early '80s in New York, 16 millimeter, gritty as fuck, just dirty, dirty vision of New York City from that time. I don't know. I just love that stuff. I love just how much they were making out of nothing, really, from this. Those stolen shots of the New York subway, those gorilla shots from the the streets of Joe Spinell just walking around being creepy. The, the the special chemical processes that they were taking to make sure you could actually see what the fuck was going on in those scenes. All of that together, I think, is is really cool. So, yeah. Camera work. My number two. Yeah. My number two, I didn't get to talk enough about throughout this particular episode, but the goddamn score on this movie oh, is so good, mm-hmm. as is the sound design. So it's a little hybrid shout out here at number two to Jay Chataway, who is the composer on this film. Watching it, there's something that is really cool and weird and almost futuristic about the synth in this. And so it has a very synth heavy soundtrack, which for 1980 is a little bit ahead of what's going to later take over the 80s in terms of those synth sounds but not even synth sounds there are times where i'm like are they using a theremin (laughs) (laughs) i was like i i hear theremin and i'm like what is this star trek you know anytime that you're watching a movie and you stop and ask yourself is that a theremin my opinion, good movie. Yeah, exactly. I was like, okay, so the score is phenomenal, and there is a theremin, and it reminds me of Star Trek. And so I had to go and look up, like, who in the world is using this futuristic theremin-sounding score? Turns out it is Jay Chataway, who, this is his first film, media, whatever that he ever composed for, and then he's going to go on to be the score composer for pretty much every Star Trek franchise after the original series. Ah, uh, okay. And so All I was right. like, okay, there, there's the theremin in the soundtrack. I gotcha. Or like the Star Trek sounds. So like, it sounded like Star Trek because this is the man who basically brings us outside of the original series, like all the sounds of Star Trek. So that's cool. And this is, I did not know he got his OG start in this little independent maniac film. So cool job all around. But yeah, very cool sounds. And as we mentioned at the top, those 
that taken advantage of the Dolby low and high frequencies, that there is something that is amazing happening in the background sound design of those low rumbles and then like the high little screeches and the back and forth that they purposely put right after each other just to unsettle the nerves. Super cool. The sound in this is great. Mm. I dig it. Who's your number one? My number one is our boy Joe Spinell. I appreciate how much of himself he was just letting loose in this movie. I, I think many actors, for so many actors, like it can be easy to be uh, be gripped in vanity or to be restricted by it, to not want to appear too like ugly on camera or to you know, have like some actors like they just spend all their time lo- looking at their hair. They don't give a shit about the performance. It's like is that is the is the hair good? Is the light good on me? Whatever. Not Joe Spinell. Joe Spinell looks like shit in this movie in the best way possible. I mean, here is this heavy set guy. He has all these scenes like where he's walking around shirtless, just his gut is out. He's looking greasy and sweaty. So many scenes like the, that, the strangulation scene where he's like getting down into the camera. I mean, he's allowing himself like his pockmarked double chin face to get right up in the camera, be greasy as hell, ugly and terrifying. And Joe Spinell, he is there for it, man. Just going all the way. He contributed to, I mean, he wrote this movie more or less. I mean, there were some writing partners involved, but he was very much behind the writing of the film, championing the film, putting his own money into the film to make it happen. And, you know, never looked like, looked back in this movie happily for all of his days was always proud of it. No matter what anyone else said. And really a lot of the, you know, the special features on this Blu-ray really do everything they can to tell a, a happy story of Joe. I mean, he was a complicated guy, definitely had his flaws, but was very passionate about everything he did and loved the people that he worked with all the time. So yeah, fascinating guy. And it was, it was fun to learn more about him. And now I can, I can watch Star Crash and look at uh, Count Zarath Arn and say, wow, Joe Spinell, man, fucking legend. Yeah. Your number one. My number one goes out to the camera work. Okay. Yeah, the camera. So partially the cinematography, but not even necessarily like the way that this thing is lit because they use a lot of the natural lighting. It really is more for me the composition of a lot of the shots that they are getting. We're getting a lot of really cool contemporary shots, a lot of close-ups, a lot of cutaways and inserts to things that just make the movie a little bit better, like inserts of bubbles going down the drain or (laughs) the fact that the first kill that we really get on screen of that guy that's getting strangled, we're not focusing on the face, we're not focusing on the neck with the wire, we're focusing on the feet off of the ground that are just kicking and dangling over the sand. There are just some really cool fragmented shots that we get, which really also adds to this partialism of the narrative when the entire idea of partialism-based objectification is when you have this obsession fixation on the parts of something in representation of the whole so that 
our killer here, right? That is his his vibe. He is a partialist towards the scalp, that that represents the entire woman. And that then he has these kind of paraphilia things in the mannequin that are helping augment the fantasy of bringing the scalp to life. So the fact that we're dealing in fragments already within the psyche of our character and then having a lot of the kills be focused more on fragments is very cool to me. And there's just some really pretty, delightful shots to look at. And I was not expecting that going into a 1980s gritty you know, horror film. They tend to not always be shot in a way that you're like, cool, let's freeze frame that and just really enjoy that composition for a moment. So yeah, just a delight to watch all around. Everybody brought it on this film. They were having fun. They got to do whatever they wanted because they were financing their film and they got they tricked SAG into <laughs> not wanting to have anything to do with them. So they were free. And this is a movie they made without any restraint. I, I fucking dare anybody to find me a cast or crew member on this thing that, that was half-assing it. You can't do it. Yeah, they believed in this project and that is fun. So yes, Maniac, super, super fun film. So thank you to the listener who recommended that we do that one. Hopefully this brought you some stuff. So yeah, if anybody else has recommendations or things that they would like us to check out, hit us up on Instagram, Twitter, or the subreddit page at Cinema of Cruelty. That's, that's my little public PSA. There you go. <laughs> Self-promotion. There we go. And for now, we are going to depart from this wonderful, glorious film, a canon staple of horror for horror watchers everywhere. And yet, I just felt delighted. And so perhaps that means we should safe word out here and go seek out some therapy. <laughs> I didn't find anything wrong with this film, and perhaps that does mean that I should seek therapy. <laughs> I'm not going to. Anybody get